This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 572 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Kevin Sear. Now, Kevin is a SWAT commander for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, the importance of physical fitness, leadership, the incredible international story about his own mental health, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kevin Sear. Enjoy. Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, th- thanks, James. Thanks for having me. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm really appreciative of what you do. So anything I can do to help, uh, I'm super excited and stoked to, to, to do whatever I can. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a great chat. So first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Sure. Uh, we are talking now. I am uh, just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. So just a couple hours north of Seattle. Brilliant. So I would love to start at the very beginning then, chronologically. So where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah. So I was born and uh, well, I was born in Toronto, but I was raised on the east coast of Canada. So a place called uh, in New Brunswick, which is just a little north of Maine. Uh, grew up in a fairly small town, about, you know, 30,000 people. Uh, my mom and dad, um, worked they had a business they had a home heating business like uh, furnaces and and on the east coast it's home heating oil so it's not electric it's not um natural gas it's like oil and you've got like a truck that comes around and delivers oil to you know your tank outside your house so that's what my dad did uh they owned their own business so they they were entrepreneurs you know my whole life i've got three siblings um you know as as my Catholic upbringing would uh, would indicate, and you know, there's no shortage of siblings. I've got two older brothers and a, and a younger sister, and uh, you know, I was born in the late '70s, so I'm a I'm a child of the '80s. I uh, you know rode my bike with no helmet until the streetlights came on. I drank out of the hose. I you know we played with lawn darts that had the metal tips that we threw at each other, and you know we all have the stitches and the and the stories to go with that with that sort of idyllic '80s upbringing. So what were you doing as far as sports when you were young? Uh, you know, I, initially I wasn't doing anything, um, you know, until I hit about grade six. I, I didn't like baseball, uh, scared of the ball, been scared of the ball my whole life. Um, but, but until I found martial arts, I, I really hadn't found my groove. So it's funny, I, you know, I'm scared of the ball, but I'll, I'll get kicked in the head, you know, kind of no problem. I, you know, I was a scrappy kid. Um, 
I had this thing when I was a kid, like like early, like grade two or three, where I figured out that if someone was trying to bully me, particularly if they made fun of my ears, we were going to fight. And I don't mean fight at recess or fight at lunch or after school. We're going to fight right now. And it didn't matter if it was just one guy or three guys, like we're going to fight. And I, it didn't even matter if I lost or not. You know, it, it was on. Um, and, and so I think I was probably headed for a pretty rough go. But then, you know, Karate Kid came out and, uh, you know, everyone wanted to be in karate. And there was a local karate school that uh, trained on the weekends in my at, at, in the gym at the school. Um, so I joined up there, uh, ended up at their main dojo to the point where I was, me and my friends were training like five, six days a week. We had the keys to the dojo and all through high school, that's what we would do on the weekends is we'd go to the dojo and just train all Friday, Saturday. Like that, that's, that was our weekend. Now, what uh, style were you doing? Uh, it was Kempo. So like old, old school, you know, hard style karate. And, you know, it, it almost seems foolish nowadays. We look back, right? And it used to be you know, now we look back knowing MMA, knowing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and stuff, and we, and we kind of scoff at those old school styles. But back in the day, that's all there was. And uh, there were some tough dudes there. And there was some, you know, it was it was like legit hard style karate. So, it, 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 you know, it gave me a lot of discipline and it uh, it, it served me very well. Yeah, I remember doing Shotokan and I was just telling, I can't remember it was, I remember my son the other day. We would have these these pads for the hands, and they looked like almost like a, a wrist support bandage, but it went over your knuckles as well. And it had the pad, but when you made a fist, the pad stayed on the top of your hand, and basically you were punching each other with bare knuckles. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, no man, it was it was great. Um, you know, just the camaraderie and the training, and have something to to strive for, and that belt progression. So you know, when I'm in grade seven you know, in grade eight and grade nine, and I'm working towards my black belt. And I think I got my black belt around, you know, grade 10 or I think, you know, I was grade 11 or 12. It was towards the end, you know, the end of high school, you know, that it's just something to strive for. And there's no, there's no easy way to do it. And the black belt test is like a three hour slug fest. And, you know, you're not walking right for a few days after. And I, I don't know, it's a bit of a crucible. And I, I think there's value in, in introducing those types of crucibles to, to kids, you know? Absolutely. Well, I actually never took my black belt purely because of uh, financial reasons. I don't know if it was the same with you, but the black belt testing was, I think it was like a hundred, hundred and something pounds. And I was, you know, a young student and I just didn't have it. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm not getting my black belt then. <laughs> so in my mind, you know, technically I got it, but I never actually physically did. Yeah, I, I kind of have this thing now where I judge martial arts schools by whether or not they, they charge, I judge schools whether or not they charge for, for gradings you know, and, uh, and, and testing. And I tend to like the BJJ style that, that I've seen now where it's like, you know, Hey, you've earned this, here you go. It's kind of included. I, I like that much better than, you know, Hey, pay for your belt test kid. Yeah, absolutely. Now you talked about the karate kid I grew up in the same era. I was born in 74. So, you know, was enamored by, I mean, we had such an amazing movie generation, I think between back to the future and ET and the karate kid. Um, but now you've got the Cobra Kai series coming around and they've done an interesting thing where they kept the choreo a little bit shit to match what it was, you know? So have you, have you seen any of those series at all? So in my garage, I've, in my gym, I've three posters. One is Cobra Kai, like strike first, strike hard, no mercy. The other is Bloodsport and the third one's Predator. So I think that sort of tells you what, you know, what my movie tastes are. <laughs> yeah, but have you seen the, the Netflix show, though? They, they it's fantastic. Oh, okay, it. I was going to say, so yeah. cheesy. It is, but it's it's crazy <laughs> because, you know, 
they're now the kids that that you and I were growing up, and then they're you know the same age as us. Well, Daniel Russo is a little bit older, I think, but you know now they're they're all wrinkled and everything, and their dads and yeah, it's just it's such a weird, weird uh, kind of lens to look through now. But I don't know if you had this too. When I started doing martial arts myself, um, you start looking at blood sport and Karate Kid, and you're like, oh, okay. You know, what used to be like mind blowing to you when you actually get to kind of near black, you're like, Oh, okay, I can do it. And I don't have to cut it 12 times to make that one kick look even better. So it was, uh, it was almost a little bit disappointing when you got deep into the martial arts world and realized it, it kind of shattered your illusions a little bit. It, you know, it, it is, but I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of those films because they gave me something to strive for. You know, like, you know, watching like Jean Claude Van Damme and Universal Soldier you know, makes me want to be a commando. And, you know, like it was just these, these ideals. And, uh, I don't know, man, they serve me well. Like, but, but you're right. Like in retrospect, it's almost, it's so campy, but, uh, at the time they were, they were the best role models that I had, you know? Yeah. Well, I think I contrast them with Bruce Lee though, because to this day, he's still phenomenal to watch. You know what I mean? So you had the, the true, true, incredible martial artists, and you had the people that were just great on film for those scenes. And you know, I think as you get into it, you're like, all right, you know, some of these these people are phenomenal. Like Tony Jaa, you know, that's a that's a true athlete. But then, you know, Ralph Macchio, maybe not, you know, not too scary in a street fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what about the career aspirations? So you're you're a young martial artist. What are you dreaming of doing when you leave high school? You know, so I was kind of always like had this sort of bifurcated career interest where, you know, I always loved the military stuff, you know, and I always wanted to be a commando. I just thought that was, you know, super cool. I remember, you know, you know, reading the, the encyclopedia, if you remember back when we, when we had those and like looking up camouflage and there'd be like a sniper in a ghillie suit. And I just go, wow, how do you make one of those? And I mean, you couldn't go online and research like there's no way to know. So I, I had this interest in, in joining the military. But this was like mid '90s, and the Canadian military at the time uh, was in a well, sort of in a position that policing is in current day, where you know they're vilified in the media, they're poorly funded, they're under resourced. Um, Canada was coming off of uh, it was called the Somalia affair, where we had some paratroopers, um, you know, some really elite soldiers in Somalia, and uh, a few of them, you know, tortured a kid to death for breaking into their camp. Uh, it's since been inter- maybe linked to Malfoquin and some of the, the medications that they were had to take for malaria and some of the mental impacts it might have. But of course, I mean, 1995, I didn't know that stuff. So, you know, I walk into the Canadian military um, uh, recruiting station and, you know, there's some kind of like, like chubby guy and, you know, he, it's just whoever they plunked there and he didn't really s- sell it to me. And I was too stupid to ask more penetrating questions about what sort of career options they had because, you know, it turns out, as I know now in retrospect, the Canadian military is absolutely a fantastic organization with, you know, some fantastic opportunities. But to me, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, yeah, it's kind of like a tepid response. I, I actually tried to join the U.S. Marines. Um, so because I just had this, you know, movie vision of like Marine Corps. So I remember, you know, and it was an interesting juxtaposition between how the Canadian military recruited and how they recruited. So I called down, you know, like looked up in the, you know, the, the phone book. Uh, you know, military recruit, Marines recruiting in, in Maine. So I call this guy and I hit the, uh, their answering machine and it's just, their answering machine is machine gun fire and explosions. <laughs> and then it's <laughs> and then it's some guy, he goes, you think you got, you got what it takes to be a Marine? Leave a message. And I'm like, yeah, I got what it takes. So 
at the time, though, they didn't have any program that would allow for, you know, foreign citizens to come in and, and, and join the military. I think that's kind of gone back and forth a few times, maybe, but at the time they didn't have it, or at least this guy didn't, didn't know it. So I kind of had that and I always wanted to be a police officer, but the other thing I was interested in sciences. So I, I had convinced myself through high school as a mediocre student until I hit um, my grade 12 pro, um, calculus class and an advanced physics that class and realized that I actually was kind of good at that stuff. Um, so I applied to university and ended up doing my undergraduate uh, uh, honoring in mathematics. Now, when I got in, like, I say that, but it's like, you know, by fourth year, I was hitting like, like the equations that Will Hunting does on Good Will Hunting, like that kind of math, like, like number theory and topology and combinatorics. And man, I was in the deep water and like, I could not, I couldn't keep up. Like, it was like, I don't understand this stuff. Same thing with the theoretical physics. It was like, okay, like you dudes are a different breed. Like I can get by through hard work to an extent, but I, you know, this stuff's something else. But I had good marks. So I actually had three options coming at university. I had a I had a scholarship to do my um, master's in software engineering. And this was in 2000. So that would have been lucrative. And then I had um, an offer to do to work as an actuary, which is kind of like an accountant doing number uh, analysis of stock markets. Very lucrative. And then the other one was uh, I had applied to the RCMP and uh, I got in on my second go. Uh, they deferred me the first time. I was pretty young. And uh, of those three options, I was like, yeah, I just want to go drive a police car with lights and sirens. So um, I kind of dropped everything, dropped those other two options and uh, and went to um, Depot, which is in you know Regina, Saskatchewan. So September of 2000, I landed there. So going back to what you said about the Somalia event, it's interesting because I've never heard that before. I just had a conversation with a former Navy SEAL, Brandon Webb, who has uh, uh, a media company now called Softrep, um, and he was talking about some of the, you know, the dark stories that came out of the SEAL teams and how, you know, often it was suppressed and, you know, now the management or the, the command is now finally acknowledging that there's an issue. But, you know, this is something I think that, you know, resonates in, in law enforcement, in fire with the way that we work some of these men and women, the, the times that we deploy them, the shifts that we do, you know, it does set some of us up for failure and does create mental health problems. So, you know, I wonder if it was solely the drug or if it was also compounding of being in a foreign country where you were fearing for your life and then you add sleep deprivation and burnout and, you know, maybe some childhood trauma, who knows, and, and you get this perfect storm for either suicide or homicide. Yeah, it was interesting. I, f I forget where I even saw that linkage, but it, it was absolutely fascinating um, and kind of terrifying. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, uh, we have uh, vaccine mandates up here right now. And one of my guys said, hey, man, listen, it was in the military. Uh, they gave me some stuff. Uh, didn't work out so well for me. I, I'm, I just don't want to take this. And, 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 you know, it was kind of linked to that same story. And I was like, bro, I, I, I get it. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 yeah, very interesting. Well, you also mentioned about the, the mathematical side. What's interesting with that, my wife has been on an amazing educational journey, which has ended up with her in med school right now. She's actually, I'm going down tomorrow to, to watch her get a white coat, which is like the official ceremony of the, the journey. She's in optometry school. But we went to community college together and we both struggle with math and she's part Filipino, half Filipino. And she just took off with the math. Like she gets it. I 
hit a brick wall you know just i cannot get it but i always like joke with her that it was the recessive asian gene that i'm going to get her a violin and she needs to start learning that next but yeah i mean she you know some people do some people that i do not have the capacity for math i just do like street math like met drug calculations and pumping calculations i can get that if i keep going but yeah the higher level math i mean i'm just you know we're all made for a certain thing and that certainly wasn't my brain i would i might disagree with you to some point so in my schooling, I did my first two years and my marks were sort of lackluster the second year. I took a year off and worked on a road construction crew and, you know, like long days. And I thought, and I, it occurred to me, I had an epiphany, like, wait a second, university is a job and studying is a job and I'm going to treat it like that. So I went back my third year and I treated it like a job. I went to school at 8 a.m. and I left at 5 p.m. And during that time, if I wasn't in class, I was in the library. And what I would do with my math questions is I would just redo them over and over again the same question and over time i was i started to see patterns emerge and started to gain a deeper level of understanding so i do that with my daughter now if she's struggling with a question we just do it over and over again and the deeper understanding will come so uh, everyone thinks they're not good at math you're a smart guy you're probably good at math you, you just maybe not have learned it the right way so anyway i'll, I'll no, I, I think go you're, you're, France you're, once in a while. Yeah, no, you're actually right to correct me because if I really am brutally honest, it's also the why beneath you're studying. And I was doing math while I was on shift as a firefighter, and it was a, for lack of a better word, a bullshit prereq to get me to the journey I actually wanted to. You know, so it was one of those many classes that really aren't going to pertain to anything. This particular math class that I had, there was a there was a hurdle to get to where I wanted to go, and my my desire to get that particular degree wasn't strong. So, yeah, I I mean, in all honesty, the difference between myself and my wife is that that was one of the rungs of the ladder to her med school dream. I was, you know, kind of half ass chasing a degree when I already had a career that I loved. So I think, yeah, the why behind it is definitely a factor. Yeah, but I bet you can calculate pump pressures for a hose depending on the grade that the hose is on and how much water you need and how long the hose is i bet you can do that yeah i call that street math street math i'm okay at <laughs> Bro, that's math that's math. Yeah, real world you're, math yeah yeah you're good at math if you can do that you're good at math i hate to break it to you <laughs> <laughs> all right i disagree moving on <laughs> all right well then so you have this martial arts background, you know, so you're somewhat of an athlete at that point. What was the journey like into law enforcement physically and mentally for you? So when I showed up, I remember the summer before going to depot and I trained like a madman because I'm just like picturing this, you know, massively difficult, you know, event, you know, in my future. And it's six months long. Um, and I got there and honestly, man, it was like summer camp. Like I was a single guy. I was like 21, 22 years old. Our days consisted of waking up early, doing PT, studying some law, doing some, you know, fast driving, shooting guns and learning to fight. Like, like you, you couldn't design a, you know, a better environment for me. So, um, you know, I really didn't struggle with it at all, you know, physically or academically. If I struggled with it, it was probably on a relationship basis where, you know, you're now living like at the time, you know, it was a, a, a dorm full of, you know, like 32 people and your bed was right next to another guy's bed. And you had what they called it a snoreboard and it's literally like a, a two foot long board that separated your heads. Otherwise, you know, that's it. So you're in really tight confines, like big group showers. You know, everyone's on the same schedule. Everyone's wearing the It's very regimented. Um, so if, if I struggled in anything, it was. It was like 
probably my ego taking place because I knew where I ranked in, you know, in the physicality thing. You know, my, my PT was 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 spot on. Uh, I knew where I, I, I can shoot. I shoot well. I never struggled with it. Like I just didn't struggle with anything. And at the time, I looked down upon those that maybe struggled in one of those, you know, one of those areas, which is really, you know, stupid and foolish in retrospect. But rather than, you know, help people, I'd, you know, probably scoff at them or or create more friction for them instead of helping them. So that's one area I, I definitely struggle. If I had to do it all over again, I'd be able to improve on it. But but all in all, I enjoyed it like a lot. Now, when we're going to talk about the the mental health journey that you went on later in your career, one thing I want to do before we get too deep into the timeline, when you look back, when, you know, acknowledging now after five years, the incredible impact that childhood trauma has on, you know, us before we even get into the career and is amplified by what we do. Are there any elements of your upbringing that you would consider traumatic? Man, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about that. It's like, I didn't have it easy. Um, I didn't have it bad. I had it hard enough that I have a bit of grit, you know, and a little bit of sand, which I, I, I think is, is necessary. Um, yeah, like, man, like, I, I don't know, like, you know, growing up in the eighties was, was different than today there, you know, there wasn't the same supports like you're, you know, it's it like, if you're bullied in school, it was up to you to, to get yourself out of it. No one was coming to, to save you. Um, you know, I, we didn't grow up poor, but like, I never went to Disneyland. I didn't go on any ski trips, you know, like, so I, I certainly wasn't rich. So probably, you know, middle class, maybe lower middle class, um, just enough that I really appreciate what I have today. Um, so yeah, I don't know if anything would be tra- like, I would classify as traumatic, like wasn't abused in, in any way, but you know, no one's family's perfect and, and, and life is hard. And, uh, and I was exposed to some of the, those harsh realities, I'm kind of grateful for those experiences. I don't, I don't look at them as, as negatives. I look at them as, you know, as, as positives really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I mean, trauma can be, you know, interpreted in so many different ways from obviously a blatant, you know, um, abuse all the way through to, you know, a lack of love, for example. But, um, it definitely does factor in with a lot of the, the mental health stories, but there are other people that, you know, had a, a great childhood as far as I could tell that also struggled deeper into their career, which is probably all the other elements combined. So I know you ended up on the SWAT team. So kind of walk me through your time on the streets and then what kind of steered you towards a specialty team. Yeah, sure. So when you graduate, when you join the RCMP, the RCMP is it's different than policing in the States. So we're a federal agency. So we're like the FBI, DEA and ATF, you know, all one agency does that. But we also take provincial policing contracts. So imagine if, you know, a state could, hey, call up the FBI and say, hey, would you mind being our state troopers for us? Uh, we do that as well. So we, we serve as a provincial police force. So that means we do all the small towns and highways in, in, in most of the provinces. But then we also take city contracts. So imagine if, you know, a city could call up, you know, the FBI and say, hey, could you also please, you know, give uniform policing f- for for our city? So we do like really end-to-end. Now there's some disadvantages to that, um, namely just the bureaucratic size and, and sluggishness of our organization sometimes. But there's advantages to it because for a guy like me, I can bounce around in the same agency and do like 10,000 different jobs. So when you join, they don't tell you where you're going. Like you could go anywhere. You could go up to the Arctic. You could go down to a major, you know, uh, metropolis area. You, you don't know. So generally, so, you know, I'd performed fairly well in depot. 
and uh, and so they, they stuck me somewhere where I'd be kind of working alone a lot. So I, they, they said, hey, you know, they gave your posting towards the end. They said, you're going to New Hazleton. I'm like, well, where's that? And like I look and it was in British Columbia and guys from British Columbia didn't know where it was. So I'm like, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. That's like I had to sign. work. <laughs> bad sign, man. When you look at it, where's that? And he's like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> so uh, it was it was up north, um, three small towns, uh, seven indigenous communities. Um, you know, like I think there's like nine cops there. Uh, working 24-7. Really good exposure because we, we um, you know, in big cities, there's no, de- you know, the detective comes and takes the big case. For us, it was like, no, like you're doing, like there's no one else. No one's coming to help you. You're the one who's going to do this whole file. We had a, a part-time SWAT team at the time. We call it ERT, emergency response team, but I'll just say SWAT because everyone knows what that is. Um, so we had a part-time SWAT team. So uh, that covered the whole area. So there was one opening from someone from my detachment so uh, to apply. So I applied uh, and managed to get in really junior in my service. And I remember the first time actually I had called the SWAT team on a call because we, we did a grow up back when marijuana was illegal. We used to arrest people who grew it in their basements. And this guy had this kind of fortified bunker house. And so we call, I, you know, I called up uh, the, you know, the earth guys like, Hey, and made you do the search warrant for me. And I remember, I still remember core memory, you know, they all showed up in their trucks and they all got their tack vests on They're you know, back in the day, MP5s and they're all in black. And it, it's almost laughable now when we look back, but uh, you know, at the time I was just like enamored. I was like, I need to do that. Like that, those are my people. Um, so I, I trained my butt off, man, and, and got in, uh, past the physicals. The physicals were pretty tough at the time. It was like a mile and a half run in under 10 minutes. Uh, but really they wanted to see it in the nines, like low nines, uh, you know, 50 pushups, uh, 10 pull-ups, and they wanted, you know, like at least a 225 bench, you know, and, and these were like not the official standards, but you weren't getting in if you weren't kind of able to do this and, uh, kind of thing. So, so train was able to accomplish that, uh, got sent on the six week course in Ottawa and then was a part-time guy for, uh, for a little while. When they post you up to a Northern spot like that, you only do a few years. So I only did a few years and then I transferred to a larger center. Uh, there I was working patrol and then I went into drug section, did major crimes. Uh, then I went to criminal intelligence, worked on some biker gang stuff. Uh, and then I transferred down to the big city uh, about 12 years ago now and uh, did major crime, child sex offenses, and then went into uh, full-time. We have a full-time team here. And so I went into full-time SWAT after that. That's a hell of a journey that you've gone through. It's, it's cool that we get we get to do all that stuff, you know? Yeah, well, so speaking of that, two things. Firstly, um, what tools did you use or or gain from having that no one else is, is coming mentality of being in a very remote location as a law enforcement officer? I don't know, man. I think just a lot of foolishness sometimes. Um, probably bit off more than I can chew more more than once. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, like you're out of radio contact. You're lucky if you have another guy working with you. Now our backup policies are much more robust. But back then, twenty years ago, they didn't think anything of you know going to a domestic yourself. Like you, you just would. Um, you know, and you'd be seventy kilometers away. I don't know, what's that in miles? I don't know, like forty miles away. Sometimes without radio contact. You know, I remember if we had two or three guys, like if we had three guys working a shift, we felt like, you know, some sort of un- invincible army, but more than once, you know, I'd be arresting one guy out of a house and my partner would be, you know, out of a house party or something, you know, whether it be a domestic or something. And my partner would be holding the door closed so people couldn't come out 
of the party and, and gang up on us. And I would have to get that guy, you know, in the back of the car and we'd have to get out of there before they figured they'd go around the back of the house and they'll come out the other way. You know, I've been, I've been swarmed in, in communities, been like bottles thrown at us where we had to, you know, so it's, it's funny. What tools? I think there's two tools. One tool is, uh, you learn to deal with stuff yourself. The other tools you learn when not to deal with things at all and when to come back some other time. So there's been times where, you know, we've literally been sworn by people throwing bottles at us and it's like, Hey, like cost benefit analysis. We don't need to arrest this guy today. His 20 buddies really won't be having it. We know who he is. We're going to come back and, and get him some other time when everyone's sober. So you kind of learn that, that, that balance sometimes. Yeah, well, it seems to be that's the case in some of the pursuits that you see. You know, it's a speeding driver or, you know, something that's seemingly not a huge crime or huge danger to the community. And then you end up with this, this crazy, uh, you know, chase that ultimately could result in, you know, people being killed. So, yeah, I mean, that, that risk analysis seems to be a very important tool. Yeah. Well, it's, well, you mentioned pursuits. I could, uh, I could tell you a story about that. We had, um, we had a, a rash of stolen cars once. This is when I was in my mid-sized city detachment. And uh, we ended up pinning one down. And we used to chase back in the day. We don't chase anymore. So we we pinned this guy down. Uh, like he abandoned his car and he went out on foot. And I saw him on foot. And at the time I was boxing competitively. Dude, I was in shape. Like he was not getting away. But he had a head start on me. And I knew it. And so I, I called out to him as we're running through these backyards. Like, bro, you're not getting away from me. And I cleared a fence quick. And he turned a corner. And I don't know where he went. Dog couldn't track him. Nothing. I had gotten a good look at him. I was like, I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to find him. I'm going to find him some other time. Like I knew exactly what he looked like. Thinking back on it, if I understood a little better patrol tactics, he probably went to ground. He probably booted a door of a garage and like was, was hiding. But at the time I didn't have the, the patrol knowledge to realize that. I didn't have any backup that day. Like no one had, you know, the other guys on shift were somewhere else. They didn't come to my position. Cause like, Oh, Kevin's going to catch him on foot. Like, like no big deal kind of thing. Cause I, cause I was fast. I did see that guy again. Uh, I saw him as he was being escorted through from cell block to the interview room, uh, because he had engaged in another pursuit that had been called off, but he kept driving crazy by chance. T-boned a police car and killed one of our members. Uh, it was an auxiliary officer and permanently disabled another one. And, uh, I think back to that, a lot because it's like there's nothing more I could have done like based on my skills and abilities like I had trained for that day I, I was in shape for that day and because of that I you know there's nothing more I could have done uh, based on what the tools I had available we, we should have done it better I think um, but man like you just you just never know but back to the pursuits like we we don't chase a lot up here there's very it has to be for a violent offense just because we've we've paid those prices before and, we, and in our cost benefit analysis it's, it's just not worth it so we've got a really stringent pursuit policy here yeah well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that and even that's something that i talk about a lot you know when when we do everything we're trained to do and I, i've talked about this many many times like i never had a cardiac arrest save in 14 years as a firefighter i was just the black cloud but what allowed me to make peace with that is because I always took my job very seriously. I took extra training, I went to paramedic school, did all these things. So that knowing that you had done everything you could for that person is, I think, what helps with the mental health side. And it's the same as what you were talking about. Of course, there's that potential guilt of what if I had caught that person, those two, you know, that one officer would be alive, the other one wouldn't be injured. But we're not God, as, as you know, people say. Like we can't control that, but what we can control is how hard we train. 
You know, you know that that's that's so true. We've had some calls, uh, you know, on SWAT here go bad, like real bad, and it's like you play this game long enough, and it's not a game, but if you play this game long enough, you're you're you you're not going to win every time. It's impossible. And I think if you set yourself up so that you know you're just going to be racked with with guilt for the inevitable loss because you don't control all the variables. Um, yeah, man, like yeah, control the variable you can, which is, which is your training and your knowledge. So, and that's going to let you survive those losses because those losses are inevitable. Well, just, um, you know, on the pursuit side for a second and some of the, the stories you were telling about the, the, the parties and such, what was your DTAC training like when you entered the force? <laughs> it's, it's, man, it's stuff that I laugh now. Cause it's like, um, you know, it, it was all like pressure point control and, you know, like takedowns, like some of like a few of the techniques were, 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 were pretty good. Um, but sort of my go-to, because of course I did, I'd done karate. Uh, I did some Japanese jujitsu. I had boxed. I later got into Brazilian jujitsu. So I had a different tool set that, that I could rely on, but I, because I found the stuff that they taught us was, was, you know, totally insufficient. I think that's, you know, been well recognized now. We've since revamped everything or in the middle of a revamp. Um, and it's, it's much more, you know, BJJ type based, but at the time it was, you know, like you know, these like weird arm drags and pressure points. And it's like, man, like you pain, come on, you can't pain compliance someone. It's like, no, they would teach you pain compliance when you don't even have control of them. It's like, no, no, like you, you, you can't just hurt someone into compliance. In fact, I, I, oftentimes it does the opposite. Well, actually, just as you say that, it suddenly, you know, spawns a thought in my head. My German shepherd um, pulled a muscle a couple of years ago, and it's been a chronic issue for her. Um, I had, you know, the full workup done, the vet, and her hips are good and all that stuff. And I had a dog, Cairo, actually come and say, I think it was, I think it was the psoas. Um, so she's kind of got this kind of hunched over. It takes her a while to warm up. She's not able to run at the moment. But if there's a squirrel runs in front of us, then she lunges for a second. And the vet was explaining that their their prey drive overrides injury normally. And I'm sure it's the same for defense. And it's a great analogy for what I hear you guys report. In the gym with a compliant officer when you're training, yeah, ow, that, that makes me stop. But now you add alcohol, you know, PCP, just pure mental ill health into the mix, you can't rely on that same system working in those situations than you can in training. Yeah, absolutely. So with the 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 way that the organization is set up, one of the the challenges I've seen in the the American first responder system is, you know, you have this county um you know, has their own department, then the city inside that county has their own department. And then within that, you've got police and fire. And it, it's absolute fucking insanity to me, but a lot of these agencies don't play well, county and city, police and fire. And it's it just blows my mind. With you in Canada being all part of a larger organizations, um, do you find there are fewer silos in in the Canadian system than you see anecdotally in the American system? Yeah, probably. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, policing in the States is is like fundamentally different than policing in Canada. So it had like, I think something like 75% of agencies in the States have under 25 officers, something like that. Whereas, you know, there's only, so there's 18,000 police agencies in the States, something around that. 
there's 180 in, the, in Canada. So even though you guys have eight times the population, you have 100 times the police agency. So yeah, it's it's much more fragmented. It's, it's much more locally based. Um, I think public satisfaction with those small agencies is is quite high though because they have so much control and so much you know knowledge and, and influence about their police agencies so I think there's certainly some benefits uh, but yeah we don't run into those issues as much now look we have silos in our own agency right like you know you've got units who don't want to play well with the other unit because you know and I want the resources and I don't want you to have the resources and I'm going to take that file even though you could probably do it better because I want my stats to show that so I get my budget increase like we have that stuff too right um, they're, they're, but but we do well. So in our area right here, so Vancouver, so Greater Vancouver is something like three million residents. There's like six police agencies, and on my team we have five of them. So so we have like RCMP. We also have uh, Delta Police, New West, Port Moody, and Abbotsford. So like five different police agencies on an integrated uh, team. So it's like different patches, but same uniform and same operation, uh, operational procedures. So yeah, I think we probably see less fragmentation here. Um, and uh, there's some advantages, but you guys have some advantages too, for sure. So staying on that topic for a second, I know that one of the areas that we want to discuss was the kind of organizational stress and leadership challenges that, that you're seeing through your eyes. I see, you know, I've, I've experienced very, very good leadership in, in one department. I've experienced fucking awful leadership in another department. Um, so I've got to see a kind of spectrum between the four that I work for and the other one that I volunteered for. Um, and I also see the impact on mental health of that organizational stress. I think when you are well led and you have great people at each rank, you create, you know, camaraderie and therefore you create you know, a higher level of mental health overall. Conversely, if it's a fragmented, micromanaged, you know, egocentric leadership, then you you see a lot of mental ill health. Um, what is your observation of that element? I guess my observation of it is, you know, in our organization, it, it's just so big and we have there's advantages and disadvantages too because we have people move around a lot so you don't get the stagnation of well that guy's been you know the chief for 20 years and he was the deputy chief 10 years before that and he's a dinosaur and he won't leave um we get a lot more cross-pollination which is kind of nice but it's the same like i've you know i've had great leaders and i've had a lot of bad leaders like a lot of bad leaders and we don't do a ton of leadership training in my organization like um i can count on one hand how many leadership lessons I've received at work. So for me, I was really struggling with, you know, I'm a commissioned officer now. I've got, you know, uh, 62 guys on my unit and uh, I was struggling as a leader. And so I had to outsource my leadership training. So I went to, uh, to Echelon Front, to their Extreme Ownership Academy. And, uh, you know, for the past year, man, that's been transformational. And we now have half of our team on that program. And it's made like a tangible difference. Like, like like a visceral tangible difference in how we communicate how we, we do, and i wish there was more of that out there um but yeah organizationally i think that's somewhere that that my agency could certainly improve so what were some of the changes you were seeing after applying echelon front principles oh man it, okay when i started as a leader like i got my commission um you know, and I, I and I did I did some headquarters jobs. So I was the actually I, I did a year as the uh, essentially the staff officer is the commanding officer. So the commanding officer in charge of like eight thousand employees, and I was her staff officer. So like like checked her email for her, like 
you know, she's very busy, right? Like she's like deputy commissioner, um, you know, put out little fires, just made things. So I got to see, I got to see everything. And I had all the secrets and I had all the info and it was really, really interesting, but I wasn't really in charge of anyone. Um, then, you know, did a couple other jobs. And then when I took over the team, it was my first real uh, leadership challenge. So now I've got, you know, a team of like, 63 of us in total well, on paper. We, of course, have vacancies. So 63 officers, all type A personalities, like double A personalities, super dedicated to their job. I, I, I say they're like huskies. Um, you know, I could lash them to a sled, rush them through, you know, a blizzard minus 40 for, you know, 20 hours. They'd be happy. If I leave them in my house with nothing to do, they're going to crap on the floor. They're going to eat the couch <laughs> and then they're going to lunge at my neck when I come in. Right. Like I just can't. So it, there was real leadership challenges there. And I felt like a white belt coming into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. It, you know, every match was just strain and energy and brute force. And I was like absolutely tired. And after six months, I was like, man, I, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know. Like these, and this is how I framed it at the time. These guys are too hard to manage. These guys are, you know, and I was putting it all on them. And then I, I even forget, you know, I, I I did like one of their law, the Echelon Front um, law enforcement sessions. And I was like, oh, well, this this looks kind of interesting. And and you know, I bought the book and I was like, wow, this actually makes a lot of sense. Then I signed up for the actual, I took the plunge. I need to make some sort of change. I need to make an investment. So I put my money where my mouth is, uh, signed up. Immediately, the ROI on that investment was like was instantaneous. I feel now like I'm more like a blue belt, you know, in leadership where it's like, I'll see something coming. And first of all, I'll see it coming further away. I'm like, oh, wait, that, okay, this guy's having a problem with this. This is a technique I can use to, to, to make it better. So I'm, you know, putting it like, how can I manage this better? I'll tell you one of the big changes now, I almost never tell anyone what to do. Almost never, like I, I can count on one hand in the last six months, how many times I've done it. I manage almost strictly by questions. Um, so I'll give someone an objective. I'll give them the constraints, explain why it's important, uh, explain why the constraints exist and say, how do you guys want to solve this? And then sometimes, and even so, sometimes they'll try to drag me. Well, you know, what do you think? I'm like, yeah, da, da, da. That's a you problem. You come to me with your different options and then we'll go from there. So we've really, we, we've expanded our decentralized command huge. Um, it used to be the point where on operations, the, the commander would think they had to control every little aspect of that operation. You know, so we'd do a search warrant. You know, the guys would be at the search warrant, um, you know, drug house, and they've got surveillance cameras, and they want to knock out their surveillance camera with their impact munition. They'd radio back to the command post, hey, can we knock out their surveillance camera? It's like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I'm, you know, in a command post down the road. I can't see the camera. I don't know where you are in relation to it. I don't know what the house looks like. Like, why are you asking me this? Like, I don't have the information to make this decision. And really what the problem was is we had mismatched uh, our uh, our authority and our responsibility, right? So I was giving those guys tons of responsibility to execute that search warrant, but I wasn't giving them the authority to make the decisions necessary uh, to make those decisions. So it's like, dude, like, so now it's like, hey, here's the actions you guys can take. And don't even ask me, like, like we've pre-approved the concept of operations. This is now your file. You've got the you've got the authority to make the, the decisions, but you also have the responsibility to articulate it when it comes to court. And you have the responsibility to make sure your guys are safe. And you have the responsibility to make sure you're not exposing the organization to, you know, to civil liability. So you place a lot more responsibility, but you also give the authority to match. So 
man, like the, I mean, that's one small example, but um, yeah, the extreme ownership, absolute game changer. I, I, you know, I show from the highest rooftops about it. Well, it reminds me again of, of the best department I would say that I work for. And I work for some, with some great individuals in all the departments, but this particular one, they set the bar extremely high at the front door. They lost about, well, lost, they, they got rid of about 25% of every higher class that they, they brought in through attrition. Um, so your training level was very, very high, you know, because of that, the fitness level was high, you know, the ownership, the love of the job. And they had us trained to the point where I'll, I'll you know, give an example. They would turn around and say, all right, you know, lay two. Those two words meant an entire orchestrated fire event from catching the hydrant, which tools to take off, you know, and they say, all right, you know, we're going to attack Charlie's side. All right, another very short, concise thing and off you go. Because there was a high level of training, therefore, there was a high level of trust. Therefore, there was decentralized command. You could tell a group of, you know, whether it's two or four men or women to go do a job and then you trust them to do the job. And if there's any issues, they'll let you know, hey, I do need extra help. You know, we do have an issue here. Give me some advice. But what I saw on the poor, you know, the the, the shitty ones, for lack of a better term, was there wasn't a high level of, of training. There wasn't a high level of ownership. And, and then you mix in egos, which I think truly comes from doubt, self-doubt of their own ability. And you end up with this micromanaging that ends up being the polar opposite of decentralized command. <laughs> Man, ba- bang on. Like, if, if I'm saying to my guys, I don't trust you to make the decision whether or not to knock out that camera, Really, what I'm saying is, I don't trust that the that I've given you know the proper training uh, or direction on this. Like, I don't think I've I don't think I've explained what you know what we need to do here. Like, and that's exactly when you give someone responsibility but no authority. That's exactly what you're saying is I don't trust you, you know. And if and if or if I give you if I give you all of the responsibility but I maintain all the authority. It's like, that's a, that's tyranny, right? Like I've got no responsibility. I've got no responsibility, but I have all the authority, but that's tyranny. No one wants to work under a tyrant. So you, you, you need to match them up or you're, you're asking for trouble. It's funny. You talk about the hiring standards. So our attrition rate on our selection process is approximately 80%. So only about 20% of the, the applicants get through a lot of them self-select out. Um, and, and then, and then we, you know, we, we, we select the rest. It reminds me of, you know, when I compare the Canadian military to the Marine Corps um, uh, application process or uh, recruiting process, right? The Canadians were very much like, oh, well, you know, this is for you. And, you know, we're welcoming for everybody. And, you know, we'll find a spot for you. And the Marines are like, if you got it, what it takes, then give us a call. But otherwise, don't. You know, like it was very self-select on the front end. I prefer that second method. I think you get better candidates. I think you get better results in the end because you've set your standards right on the front end, right, right day one to get in the board, to get in the door. And what we tell our guys on selection is, you know, this selection camp is a one week selection camp. It's hard, man. Um, it's, this is not the high water mark. Like this is day one. This is, this is the same standard you're going to be expected to demonstrate for the rest of your crew, however long you stay on the team. Now, that reminds me of the Royal Marines. They're, uh, I think this still is, but their slogan used to be 99% need not apply. And I love that, you know, and, and you hear this conversation, well, let me hear the conversation. You see the evidence of a belief in we're just going to hire 18 and a heartbeat because we need to fill seats. I disagree with that completely. I think if you set the bar, you will attract 
the people who truly want to be in that profession. But if you dig a hole and put the bar on the ground, like my last place, you're going to reap what you sow there too. But I think it's a, it's a, a myth to believe that the only way you're going to increase candidates, you know, increase staffing is to lower a standard. I think you hold it exactly where it needs to be and you get people excited to meet it and you do mentorship programs. You go into areas that are underserved and you educate them and you mentor them so they are more likely to be able to succeed in your program. Well, that's it. So, and there's, there's a nuance here that's important is that, is that the bar is that you want to be here and that you'll give it your best. If you meet those two criteria, almost everyone is going to be able to pass that bar because people can improve phenomenally in a lot of areas. I don't believe that, um, you know, someone can walk in the door and their fitness isn't good because they're not a good enough athlete. No, no. Everyone is a good enough athlete that they can meet these standards if they work hard. Everyone is, you know, is smart enough that they can, uh, you know, learn how to do, you know, CQC, like room clearing drills. Like there's no innate, you, you know, and, and that's how it was when I applied. It was like, you're either, you know, you know, you either looked like an nerd guy or you didn't look like an nerd guy, you know, and, and that is completely wrong. We take, we look at all different kinds of personality types. That's the other thing is people think, you know, we're looking for a certain personality type. No, we're looking for someone who can stay calm under pressure, make really good decisions and is good to get along with. And we've got members who are introverts. We've got members who are extroverts and we've got all kinds, but what they share is work ethic and desire that is the universal standard, but it's like on selection, I, we tell people, listen, you pass the basic physical to get here. Here's your standard. Try your best. Don't quit. And what do people do? They quit. It's like that. Like, no, try your best. Don't quit. Like, just listen to what I'm saying. Try your best. Don't quit. Ah, oh, this isn't for me. And they say, you know, I just really didn't train right. And uh, I did, you know, it, it, excuses, excuses, excuses. Hey, and we'll give them coaching. If you want to improve, this is how you improve. But they're usually just excuses because they actually didn't want to be there. They like the idea of it, but they didn't like the reality of it. And that's fair, man. It's not for everybody. That's okay. Absolutely. Well, it's amazing as well. When when I speak to members of Special Operations, Special Forces from all over the world, whether it's, you know, Green Berets and SEALs here or SAS and all these amazing men and women I've had on the show, they all hold place and fire to the same standards as themselves. And, you know, you think about it, you know, you might be in, in, in the greater military and you might be on the front line or you might be, you know, pecking away at a typewriter. Every police officer and firefighter and paramedic truly has lives at stake based on their performance. So to not hold the standard high in a profession where lives are at stake, our own lives, our partner's lives and the lives of the people that we serve is unacceptable you know so i agree 100 percent. like when people come into these especially in 2022 when you can go online that like, i want to join you know the, the mountain police how am i going to prepare and and you start working towards it you sure as shit better be ready when you walk through the door and if you're not to me that speaks you know very very loudly of your actual burning desire to be in that position i think counter i think it's like counterintuitive some people think if you lower standards, you're going to attract more applicants. And I think the, and maybe that's true, but I think the opposite is true because your really good applicants will be turned off of that. If you raise your standards, you're going to get more better applicants and, and, and more of them. So it's, it's counterintuitive. And I, I think you're right. It's a dangerous game we're playing by lowering standards. 
It is. Well, speaking of that, what about um, annually? Do you hold your offices to a physical standard each year? Yeah. So we've got a uh, it's a uh, it's a physical abilities requirements evaluation. It's like an eleven minute um, obstacle course. It it's it's actually quite horrible. Uh, like it, it's one of those ones that you know within a minute your VO two is just like you're at max heart rate, and it's a it's more of a VO two. Uh, test. We've also, we, that was shut down during COVID. So we ran the NTOA uh, physical qualifications, which is, you know, this is an awful combination of like running in a gas mask while you're carrying weights. And it, it was, it was pretty gruesome. Um, uh, so, so we've, we've run that every six months, we've got to p- pass our firearms. Uh, and then of course there's like your standard use of force training, but beyond that, there's always an expectation of performance, like always. And um, I mean, you're always going to have your top third and your bottom third and your middle third. Um, but there's sort of like a unwritten standard. If someone stops pulling their weight, you know, their sergeant's going to have a conversation with them. Like we don't, we just don't let that slide. But yeah, our physical standards are like absolute once a year. Um, if you fail, you're going to be pulled off the road and you're going to, you know, have a few months to train again. And we've never had any, actually, I don't even know if we've had anyone fail the first time. We're We're a pretty fit team. Yeah, well, I think that speaks, you know, volumes about, the, again, the standard at the front door and just maintaining that. And sadly, a lot of police and fire in, in the, the U.S. specifically, you know, we're not held to a standard. You know, and it's funny because I, I tell people all the time, in the fire service, in Florida at least, we're, our academy is called Minimum Standard. They fucking labeled it for us. Like, this is the shittiest you should ever be. And yet, once you go through there, you get a lot of people, well, I was the fittest I ever was coming out of the academy. Well, shame on you. Like, that's, you know, the first few months of your entire career, you should continue to get fitter. And I understand the wear and tear of the job and, and shifts, and I talk about that all the time. Like, this job does set us up for failure, but we still have a job to do, and we have a job to to push those standards to to create an environment for us to thrive, and also to just maintain ownership of our fitness. And you, when you remove that annual fitness standards, you basically you know open the door for our health to slowly dwindle. Well, yeah. Well, we're the same here. So although like we're a specialized unit, we have an annual physical qualification. If I was just you know working patrol or working major crime. There's no physical standard at all, um, and even the physical standard to get into the academy, it's like a it's like a four minute obstacle course. I've never run it. The only time I ran it in over and it's like done done in gym strip, you know, like shorts and t shirt. The only time I've ran it over three minutes is in full ERT gear. Like it's not hard. Like you can fast walk it at four minutes. So if you can't pass that, you like you need to look in the mirror. You are not fit. And you are dangerous to be on the road. Like you're going to go fight some 23-year-old guy who just got out of jail. Seriously? Who's on meth? I mean, good luck. But And then we see over-reliance on tools, right? That's why you start seeing over-reliance on tasers, over-reliance on batons. Yeah. Now with um, Roger Shai, another one of the, you know, the fellow law enforcement officers that I know you know from the Echelon Front World as well. When he started talking about some of the initiatives that they have in his department, you know, the realism in training was very, very impressive, whether it was their DTAC side, whether it's their firearm side. Um, what, what value was put on realism of training in your, you know, department and your, uh, specialized group specifically? Yeah. So we invest heavily, like very heavily in training. So our officers get a minimum of 480 hours. So like 40 hours a month, one week out of every month 
they are on their team training. So that's like their basic, you know, hostage calls, barricade calls, you know, high risk search warrant, like, you know, uh, like, like hands and feet skills for just like the basic SWAT skills on top of that. So the, you know, the breachers, they do an extra 120 hours a, a year. So we've got, you know, your mechanical, your thermal, your ballistic breaching, your explosive breaching. We've got uh, like snipers do another 120 hours. You know, they, they have like a 308 platform. They've got a 338 Lapua platform. They've got a, several platforms that they work off of. We've got medics that train 120 hours. They're really highly skilled. Like they, you know, they can give you ketamine and they can do, you know, I, I think and short of, I don't think they do chest tubes, but like everything else kind of thing. It's so, um, so yeah, we, we invest very, very heavily in our training. We've got a ropes, a specialized ropes team that, man, they do some incredible stuff. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we'll be hitting like a penthouse suite or something. So, we'll, you know, we'll repel in to, to take away the balcony. We get a lot of jumpers. So we do a lot of suicidal uh, intervention here. So they do all that kind of stuff. Um, we have a lot of protests here where they'll, it's like self-induced risk barricades. Like, you know, have a guy who will build a monopod, like he'll literally stick a, like at a, at a logging protest, stick a tree in a, in a pile of rocks put spikes through the tree and then bicycle lock himself to the spikes. And he's like 30 feet up and it just like to in the middle of the road to create a barrier that industry can't come in. So my guys will, you know, the rope guys will go in and, and, and extract that, that person. It's very, very complex. Um, you know, they do helicopter operations. So we've got, you know, a whole, we've got a really cool H145 here and we just got a hoist for it. We're just getting external platforms for it, fast roping. So some really cool things down. So we invest heavily in training on the front end. Uh, I've got a full-time training debt of nine officers. So, so a sergeant, a couple corporals and a bunch of constables. We actually hired a civilian who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, previously in the special forces community. He's been absolutely phenomenal so we've actually looked outside of ourselves to bring in best practices we train uh you know uh, we we bring in the ntoa so we, we also look elsewhere outwards i'm really cautious about being incestuous with our tactics and i remember when one of my old bosses when i said you know hey we should go train with other units he kind of looked at me perplexed and he says but but i already know we're good and i was like man oh, roger that sir you know i guess i'll just <laughs> wait for a bit until you leave <laughs> Uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned Chief Shy that he's he's a bit of a mentor for me. He was uh, in the Extreme Ownership Program well before me. You know, I've reached out to him a few times. We've had some some uh, some great chats. Um, yeah, he that guy runs a good agency. I mean, just listen to their ethos and how they're training and how they're outreaching to the community. Absolutely fantastic. So, have you crossed paths with Seb Lavoie? So Seb Levon and I went through basic training together. We were friends in depot. Uh, we gravitated towards each other immediately. Um, I remember doing push-ups next to him in the gym. And, uh, you know, each of us looking out the corner of our eye at the other guy. <laughs> you know, see how many he's doing. Seb destroys me in physical competitions. Or not even competitions, like in anything physical. He's like... I, he's so far ahead of me. I don't even like, sometimes I think I'm ahead. Uh, that's how far ahead of me he is. He's phenomenal. We've been friends for 20 years. Uh, we were on the team together. So when I came to the team, uh, the first time, so I came to the team as a, a corporal and as a sergeant on our training debt, then I left to take my commission. Uh, he was on the team at that point. And then, uh, I was, when he became the sergeant major, uh, I was the, that's when I was working for the commanding officer. So I was kind of involved in all, in all that as well. So him and I go way back. Okay. Cause the reason I asked, he had talked about 
his idea being that you actually build in a, a, a separate training day. So you have, you know, like a couple of shifts on and your third shift is actually training. So you're not on the streets, you're actually training, but that's still part of your cycle. What is your perception of that to include more training for the regular people in the force? So it, it's crucial. I always say in Canada, at least, or in our organization, my kid's elementary school teacher gets more professional development days than the average uniformed police officer on the street, which to me is 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 crazy. Um, you know, the mandatory training is it's like a five day course every three years where you do maybe one or two scenarios, maybe three or four, you know, like force on force scenarios. You do your basic, you know, your first aid, you, you, you do some, uh, you know, your baton training and, and, and that's it. Like, and your, 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 you know, your pepper spray training. Um, I don't think that's sufficient. I know how perishable these skills are. And yeah, like the way we work at on uh, ERT is, yeah, every third week is a dedicated training week. You know, we invest, you know, of everyone's like 2,083 hours they work a year, around, you know, six or 700 hours of those are dedicated to training. Now, look, we don't hit all those guys get sick, guys get injured, guys go on holidays. You know, you don't hit those numbers, but that's what we set aside on the front end because we know that that investment will reduce organizational risk down the line. It's going to reduce uh, physical risk down the line. It's going to reduce investigational risk. So we're going to keep our officers safe. We're going to keep the public safe. We're going to get viable charges because we're not going to have people, uh, officers, do things incorrectly or not understand what they're doing and then get it tossed in court. And then we're not going to get vilified in the media because, you know, we, we acted improperly. We're not going to get the organization sued. We're not going to, uh, we're going to avoid all kinds of risk by investing on the front end. Uh, a, a lot of people, or I think a lot of agencies, they, they almost take, um, they almost take like a lottery ticket approach to this, right? They, they view, they view investing in training as a guaranteed loss. And so they'll do anything they can to avoid that guaranteed loss, you know, but really what they're doing is it's like they're avoiding the, the guaranteed investment in training in the hopes that they'll somehow magically avoid the big time loss when they lose a big case, they get someone sued or they get someone hurt. I think that's backwards. You make the investment on the front end and then you don't worry about the other stuff because we know, we know you cannot thrive in a high risk environment. Eventually the uncontrolled variables will catch up with you. And you're going to have your bad day. So the only way to, you can't thrive, you can survive. How do you survive? By being able to withstand the oversight processes that are inevitably you're going to be scrutiny to at, at some point down the road. You know it's going to happen. So set yourself up to survive those things. Well, something that seems to be reoccurring is the divide between a special ops team in, in law enforcement specifically and the regular force. And to me, again, as a firefighter looking with you know layman eyes when it comes to law enforcement, I question, well, why isn't everyone trained and held to that standard? Because the chances of a regular beat cop getting into an altercation, getting into a, you know, a gunfight are as high, if not higher than a specialized team that's orchestrating, a, you know, a, a search warrant or a hostage situation. So, you know, what, what is your view of that? That there's, there's such a, a glaring difference between the training a spec ops team gets versus the regular beat. Yeah, it's tough. Well, I mean, we've learned the hard way to make those investments in the specialized teams, right? Like it used to be. So when I joined the program 20 years ago, you had two training days a month. 
if you didn't have a call out. If you had a call out, they said, hey, you've already had a call. You've already done your ERT stuff for the month. You don't need training. It's like, yeah, but the call went right and we trained for things that go wrong. You know, but the program itself was in its infancy. I'll tell you how how far our program has come. So I remember like 20 years ago, I was at a team practice and I was a new guy and we're doing, you know, room clearing drills. And the uh, the the team two IC says, okay, guys, you know, we're done for the days. We're, you know, we've wrapped up that. Is there anything else we need to train today? And so I raised my hand and said, yeah, you know, can we train some man down drills? Like, I don't know what to do if someone gets shot on a call. And he looked at me and he said, that's a loser attitude. We're ERT. We don't go down. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool because I don't have a tourniquet or any first aid training or any first aid equipment. So that I, I suppose that makes sense. Sure, no, no problem. Roger that. Uh, I just won't go down if I get shot in the leg <laughs> with a 308. No, no problem. <laughs> so you know, we go from that to, to present day. We, you know, it's not it's not that way at all anymore. So um, I see that same evolution going on. You know, in in the other business lines, I don't know how to square that that discrepancy. Like. Policing works on an efficiency model, not an effectiveness model, right? Like we're going to spread our resources. We're going to make the minimum amount investment possible uh, for as long as we can. And then when the situation shows that there's higher risk, then we'll bring in the other resources to to address that higher risk, right? So the thought is, well, those frontline officers, they don't need the higher training because if they run into one of those situations, they can call the specialized units. And we know that those kinds of situations are actually pretty few and far between. So that's a smart way to do, like, we can't afford to do anything else. That's the best we can do with the available resources that we have. I mean, it's not a bad model. Um, I, but yeah, do I think that the average police officer out there is undertrained? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Um, you know, Will Petty from Centrifuge Training, who runs absolutely fantastic programming, he, you know, he always says like, he says, yeah, and people ask me, are you surprised, you know, when these you know, when you have these big public outcries because, you know, something bad happens in a policing, a police officer does something, you know, terribly uh, inappropriate. He's like, no, I'm not surprised. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. You know, like, like I am surprised. Like, I know the average skill level that's out there. It, it's, it's terrifying to me because I know better. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing I talk about as well is, is the, like I said, the work environment. And you think about the sleep deprivation, you know, not only just the regular shifts themselves, but now you add the mandatory shifts as they, you know, are understaffed. And I always put that out there, like, you know, they don't ever talk that police officer that, that, you know, shot the teenager as he was reaching for his driving license. How many shifts did he work prior to that? You know, how much rest and recovery? How many times has he been forced to work extra shifts? That factors in too. Knowing as a, a totally sleep deprived firefighter medic, like I've driven off you know, the front apron of a fire station before and I can't even remember if I'm supposed to turn left or right to the call I'm going, I'm so tired. To have a life or death situation with a firearm in my hand, that also needs to be brought into the conversation. What are we, are we creating an environment to make good decisions or again, are we setting these men and women up for failure and then vilifying them when they make the wrong choice? Well, that's it. So, I mean, one policy that we have that I think is helpful is we actually cap our work hours. You know, my buddy works uh, as a, um, like a linesman, he repairs power lines. They have very strict rules Like you can work X number of hours. And after that, you time out, you cannot come to work and you're, you, you have X number of down hours. Uh, we have in our organization have, have mirrored that. So we cap out at 16 hours where unless it's truly life or death, you know, at 16 hours, we're looking for ways you know, to spell that person off and, 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 and get them out. We also have maximum hours of work 
in a week, I think it's 72 hours. Um, and there's a certain level of oversight and approval authority necessary to exceed that. So you, you, I mean, you just, we try to avoid that, you know, as best, as best we can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, it is, it's a, it's a, yeah, that, that fatigue, you know, it's funny when we talk about the Husky analogy, right? Where you have a team who's all type A and they want to work 72 hours a week. They'll do that by Wednesday. Like no problem. Like how do you monitor that and, and, and make sure they don't burn themselves out? Like, what are we asking them to do? You know, because they're going to say yes, no matter what we ask. I mean, that, to me, that it's like a self-regulation problem. Yeah. And I think it's a performance issue. You know, when, when we educate these people at the front door of the conditions that they need as far as rest and recovery to perform at the highest level, I think it would reframe it. But sadly, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but certainly in the States, you know, it, a lot of the conversation is, you know, retirement, drop, you know, oh, work, work as many hours in your last five years. There's nothing about rest and recovery. Well, you know, I know we're going to talk about this, but um, it's, I think this, there's a parallel here to the mental health strategies, right? Where, you know, when I went through training 20 years ago, they didn't teach us anything about that stuff. Like not, in fact, I, they kind of went the other way and sort of like, Hey, we're going to show you a bunch of gruesome scenes of, uh, of murder scenes to, to harden you up, you know? And, and sort of the expectation was, you know, when you have a hard day, you go cry in the shower, like the rest of us kid, you know, like you don't, you don't share that stuff. And now we've transitioned that to, we're, I think, much more alive to recognizing signs of injury. You know, it's like, hey, wait a second. You know, you, you know, it's like you're kind of like a code orange on this one, man. You're getting irritable. You're not sleeping. You have all these signs. Like, we need to kind of do something here. And I think, you know, we're, we're doing that with our sleep deprivation, our hours of work. Like, we're we're recognizing signs of injury. Oh, this this guy is, you know, he's, he's you know, he's, he's not acting appropriately. Oh, wait a second. It's because we're overworking him. I think we need to shift our focus or continue that evolution where we're actually preventing injury. You know what I mean? It's like if I go to your CrossFit gym and I'm like, you can tell me what a herniated disc feels like, but I would rather you show me how to not get a herniated disc. That's more useful to me. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I know you have a very you know powerful story of your own you know mental health journey. Um, I'm sure it didn't help that like you said you're on some of the the childhood crimes divisions and you know other areas, but I think. What also makes it very powerful was who um, specifically was the person that kind of held up a mirror to to your journey. So I'd love to kind of hear where you started struggling yourself and then walk us through that that path. Yeah, sure. So I mean, it happened so gradually that I didn't even recognize it as, as happening, right? Sort of like lived in this denial. Um, but I started... So I'd worked major crime a bunch of years and I worked a series of murders um, by a, a gang who they ended up killing like seven people and some of them in like a completely horrific manner. I mean, the, the, the one the one that bothers me the most is this guy who's he was a drug dealer who ripped off a load. So they're going to you know going to teach him a lesson kind of thing. And then one of their enforcers comes in and decides he's going to teach him the lesson and and murders him with a ball peen hammer and a blowtorch. I just like the details of this are just, I, I mean, it's beyond explanation. So, so I had that file and there was a, like, there was a whole bunch of other ones and they kind of weighed on me. And uh, so I did that, you know, um, I went to SWAT and I couldn't sleep and I was having sleep troubles because every night I, I would wake up when the screams got caught in my throat. Like that's what was going to wake me up. And so I couldn't fall asleep because the demons were coming for me because I'd have these nightmares. And it's like, 
they were the most ghoulish, macabre scenes I can describe. So the the one I I, I, I tell people about is, you know, I had this nightmare and I, I had it several times where I accidentally brought a murder victim home, like like one of the bodies home with me, like like accidentally and left it in my garage wrapped in a tarp. You know, and the body reanimated. And the guy starts walking around my house and he's wanting me to help help him. But he's walking on stumped hands and feet um, because they cut. And this is true. Like they actually had cut off his hands with a shovel to to take back as, as a prize and his ears. Actually, one of the guys was arrested with the ear in his pocket, um, leaving the scene. Um, but yeah, so this guy's like walking, you know, this like decomposing body walking on these, on his stumps or, or chasing me in my kitchen, you know, looking for help kind of thing. And literally the, the, the screams would get caught in my throat, <clears throat> you know, and I'd be screaming out every night. I'd be lashing out, like lashing out violently. You know, it got to the point where it was, it was freaking my wife out. My daughter, who was like, you know, three years old, was under strict instruction not to wake me up. Um, that he was getting bad. And <clears throat> so, you know, after a few months of two or three hours of sleep a night, like I, I just kind of like, uh, man, I was, I was struggling and, and not, you know, not wanting to admit it. Um, we ended up having a, uh, we were hosting a big training event, um, where we had, uh, we were doing like Marine interdiction. So, you know, Marine boarding and some, uh, mountain operations and uh, some, uh, specialty breaching stuff. So we had this really cool three week, uh, program. We had guys from all over the world come to it. And uh, at the end of it, we had a regimental dinner. So, you know, we dressed up in our, you know, our, our, our red surges. And uh, it's like a very formal, you know, British military style regimental dinner, like tons of history. It, it's like there's rules to it. And uh, it's very, very cool. It's very awesome to be a part of it. And so some of the uh, uh, some of the guys, you know, obviously a lot of the guys that, that were there for the for the three weeks stayed for this. And so some of the guys were from the Dutch um we had the Dutch DSI, which is like their federal, like it's like their FBI HRT, I, I think would be the closest analogy. And then some of their, uh, the Marine special operations group, they, they had come out to it. And after the reg dinner it was like one or two in the morning, I was, I was giving the guys a, a drive home. Um, cause I was working the next day. So I wasn't drinking or anything. And, and these aren't big boost fests anyway, anymore. Anyway, they kind of used to be back in the day, not anymore. Uh, so I'm giving these guys a drive home and the, and the sergeant major looks at me and says, hey, man, thanks for driving me home. I know you work early tomorrow. And I don't want him to feel bad, right? So I'm driving back to the hotel and I say, don't worry about it, man. I only sleep a couple hours a night anyway. Like I said that as a pass off comment, like don't worry about it. He turns and looks at me and he's in the passenger. He goes, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, I just don't sleep a lot. You know, like I'm, I'm trying to pawn it off. Why don't you sleep a lot? And he's waiting for an answer. And then the other two guys in the back are also like, they're like, these three dudes are looking at me, wanting me to answer this question. And I'm trying to squirm away from it, right? Like, like, oh man, I, I just don't sleep a lot. And he won't let me off the hook. Do you have nightmares? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes I have nightmares, Yeah, I guess. And so he started down this line of direct questioning and he would not let me squirm out. I was, I was trying to get away my, like, you know, but he wouldn't let, he wouldn't let him. And he finds like, what are you going to do about this? Like he, he wanted an answer. What are you going to do about this? And I was like, this guy was kind of, he's kind of scary to be honest. He was like, he's a tough guy, man. And uh, he's like, who, like, who are you talking to about this? What is your plan? Like oh, I don't, I don't have one. And so he kind of made me promise him that I was going to go, you know, figure some stuff out. So, uh, uh, so 
so I had that. And then another guy on the team, like kind of like the next day, I was like, I'm like, man, I only slept a couple hours. He goes, of course you only slept a couple hours because you're waking up with nightmares because you have PTSD. I'm like, no, 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 that's, you know, I don't have that, whatever. <laughs> and she's like, no, dude, you, you need to, you need to square this away. So I finally made uh, an appointment uh, with a psychologist, which was my first one. And I'm, man, this was like five years ago. So I've gone like 15 years with, <laughs> with absolutely no assistance, no framework on, on how to manage these, uh, these events. And, uh, you know, went, went and saw this guy so, so he could help me out a bit. Well, firstly, when you, when you uh, told me the story when we were going back and forth on text, um, it really underlines the importance of being present around each other and seeing, truly seeing. Because I think one of the sad things, and it's interesting because I know that your wife is in law enforcement too, but, you know, a lot of us, when we're all in the same profession, especially if you're in the same station and, you know, in the same first due with the same workload, we all think we're okay because we're all getting worse and worse and worse together. The ship's sinking simultaneously. But for an operator from a completely different country to catch that passing comment on the way back from a party, to me, underlines exactly what we should all be doing for each other, which is truly making sure each other's okay it's so easy are you okay yeah i'm fine oh okay good versus no are you really okay you know and a number of times i've asked that just twice that second are you really okay has elicited actually and then insert long long description of why they're not so i mean i I think that's an incredible story that a dutch operator was you know there at that time sent by the universe god whatever and that that began the process along, like you said, with your team member to initiate that cascade of you getting treatment or, you know, not lack of treatment, just just help in that direction. Because who knows where it would have taken you. I've had many, many people on the show that went to a much darker place after that. Well, so, yeah. So that's the thing is one of my big mantras in, in operations is to control all the variables that I can control. So in my life, um, I have... I've got a great life. You know, I'm a disciplined guy. My health is good. I'm, you know, I, I maintain my fitness. I'm financially sound. You know, I, we don't, we don't have debt. Uh, my marriage is good. We have good communication. So I had all those other variables controlled. I think that helped me weather that storm a little better uh, than I otherwise would have. And um, the other thing is you, you talk about connection the interesting thing is, is one thing that I've realized is that what has what has reduced my ability to connect with people is the exact thing that uh, that we're talking about is 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 that emotional atrophy from uh, you know from from not dealing with these these instances properly. And maybe I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So when I went to see my guy, my my psychologist guy, and I've since switched to, to someone else, just you know, he was unavailable. She's absolutely excellent. She's helped me huge. The way that it was explained to me, it's I'm like, why am I having these nightmares about these murder scenes? And he says, Kevin, he says, look, he's like, your mind is like a library. He said, you're gonna go to a file and and you're gonna have him. He goes, he goes, tell me this. He goes, what's the most gruesome murder scene you ever thought you you ever went to? And I sat and thought, I was like, oh, it's when this guy, Ed, got killed with a roofing hammer by his roommate. And I don't know if you've ever seen anyone killed with a roofing hammer, but it looks kind of like what you'd imagine, right? He says, uh, he goes, okay, he goes, why did you have to think to retrieve that memory? But these other memories are just popping up, you know, unwanted. 
He goes, because you, ha- you haven't dealt with, with the event properly. He goes, your mind is like a library. He says, the Roofinghammer murder, you've taken that library book and you've properly filed it away in your filing system. It's not bothering you. He said, the, the other ones, he's like, you didn't file it away in, in, on the bookshelf. You left it on the table. And then you came in and you put another book on the table. And then you put another book on the table. And then you put another book on the table. He goes, now that table's overflowing with books. Every time you come into your library, you're tripping over them. And your mind is trying to file them away. But your mind is not good at filing things away properly. You have to file them away uh, yourself. Or you, like, you have to consciously do it. Your unconscious is not good at this. And that's what these dreams are. That's what these intrusive thoughts are, is your, is your brain trying to figure a way around these things. And, you know, what I've, what I've since learned is that the way I was trying to deal with these things is uh, I have two primary defense mechanisms for me. One is dark humor and one is intellectualizing. So dark humor, I'll give you an example. You know, I go to the roofing hammer scene and this guy actually had three kittens and they're, you know, going through the blood and they're, 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 there's blood spatter evidence, right? Because it's an impact weapon murder. How many times was he struck? You, you need to analyze this stuff. And they're actually kind of licking things up and they're like three white fluffy kittens all covered in blood. So I had to gather them up to protect the scene, and, you know, to get them out. So I, so I have these armful of bloody kittens and I walk out of the bedroom and I say to my, you know, the other guys there, I'm like, huh, guys, that was like herding cats in there. <laughs> you know, I thought it was pretty funny. You know, I tell my, my psychologist, she goes, that's not funny. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's funny. She's like, it's, it's not funny. Um, she, she was like, that's, that's a, like a really big deal. So for me, I use a lot of dark humor and I also intellectualize. So, you know, you'll go to the overdose scene and, and, and this can manifest itself in ways, you know, if you explain it to someone who doesn't understand, they'll, they'll just think you're this heartless monster, but you'll be like, well, this person didn't have a chance in life anyway. You know, well, this person, you know, well, you know, they're, they're just a criminal. And you, like you, you write them off to, you know, whatever universal factors make it insignificant because now I don't have to feel bad about it. I don't have to, I don't have to think about it. Right. Dehumanize them. Dehumanize. Exactly. So when you start purposefully ignoring sadness, cause these are sad scenes, like someone's died, like that's a sad event. When you purposely ignore this sadness and push it away, and when you purposely ignore, you know, uh, anger at the parents who's abused their kids, and when you purposely ignore, you know, and you push all these emotions away, man, you don't get to pick and choose what emotions you atrophy, right? So you're going to atrophy all of your emotions. You're going to atrophy your ability to feel happiness. You're going to atrophy every. You're going to atrophy your empathy, and you're going to atrophy your ability to connect with people. So now you're not going to be able to connect with other people and even notice that that guy maybe isn't okay because you're not going to pick up on those clues because, you know, we, we, we always joke, I'm, you know, I've, I've been a cop for 20 years. I'm dead inside. Like, it's not a joke. Like it's, that's, you've purposely, or maybe not purposely, but, but you've, you've, you've deadened yourself inside and you're not going to be able to connect with anything. And then that's going to start impacting all your relationships. You know, and it, it gets to the point where it's like, man, like I wasn't even making eye contact with people for a while. And people joke, you know, like, like I would just walk by people. I wouldn't notice other people. I would, I'd completely lost the ability to connect with other people. And, uh, and, and so that I was, I had put myself in a position where I was not able to give the same gift to someone else that that Dutch Sergeant Major gave to me. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know if that's, that's my take on it. 
No, but it's, it's fascinating. And again, thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's a couple of factors that, that struck me. Firstly, you know, the, the sleep deprivation element that compounds mental ill health, you know, there's an irony to it because there's so many people that are in this position. They're, they are haunted by these nightmares, therefore they can't sleep when sleep is the very thing that's needed to heal from these nightmares. I mean, the, 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 the memories are processed when we get in that deep sleep. But if we can never deregulate the nervous system to get that true parasympathetic state, we're not able to process those. But also, as you were saying, that compassion fatigue, I saw it in, in a lot of my, my fellow firefighters that I know are good, caring people that are screaming at people on scene. Because they're just so burnt out that, again, that emotional element is like a, a rabid dog and it's just doing whatever it wants now. So it's just a very interesting perspective. And then with the dark humor, again, I think there is a time and place. I mean, you know, we have to laugh sometimes, again, to downregulate. I think it is a tool. But when all you can see is is the kind of the, the, the joking around it and you never actually process the reality as well, I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Well, well that's it. Like... You know, if if we get a call today of, you know, some guy who's killed half of his family and is holding the other half, you know, like a hostage, that's not the time to feel sad. You know, that's not the, 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 the time to feel, you know, upset. It's going to be all business, you know, all the time. And if we're on that call for 20 hours, you know, and the tension's really high, I'm going to find a way to bring the tension down a little bit in the team by, you know, cracking a joke when it's needed, right? When it's needed. Um but if I don't circle back and actually process that properly, yeah, like that's going to, you know, it's going to come back wh whether I like it or not. So I can either choose to deal with it or I can choose it to deal with me later. I, I, I don't get to, I don't get to, I don't get to not do it. Right. But I found like, it, it's funny, like, you know, you, you sit across from a psychologist and they'll, they'll tell you like, Hey, tell me about, you know, situation X. And it's like, I don't even want the words to come out of my mouth. Like I'm like, this is, and you start right. This is fucking stupid, and they don't know what it's like, and I don't need to talk about this again. And and it's almost comical how obvious it is of of a defense mechanism. Like, why can't I sit here and tell you about, you know, you know that 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 drug user who's selling to to support a habit, you know, getting gruesomely murdered, and other people being in the room, and and you know they they came on as witnesses, and they, they didn't didn't know how to, what to do. Cause they were scared. And we found blood in the ceiling. Cause it was on the second floor. So we found blood in the ceiling, the first floor. Like, like I should be able to explain that to you in, in a way without, um, I should be able to explain it. Not like I'm not talking about that, but that's exactly, that's exactly where I was. And it, it should be obvious. Like it's like these waves of emotion. And so here's, I've learned a tool. I've learned a skill. It's, it's how to sit with an emotion, right? So my old self would be like, Hey man, that thing made me feel sad. Like, fuck that. I don't feel sad. Like I'm a badass. I don't feel sad. It's like, no, like you can't, you know, emotions are waves. You can't hold back the ocean. Just sit with it for a minute and let it, and, and let it turn. So I find this really helpful for me, uh, in intrusive thoughts. So, you know, like, you know, for me, it's like, I'll be running a bath for like my daughter and I'll think of the file where the woman, you know, drowned her kid to death, you know? And it's like, man, it's like, it's really intrusive thought. And then your brain starts playing tricks on you. Like, how could someone do that? And then, it, you know, um, it, it, and we know the dark places that the, the mind takes you in, in that thought process. My inclination was push that stuff away. Now what I do is I say, okay, wait a second. What's behind this intrusive thought? 
okay, it's that file. It is a feeling of anxiety. It is a, it is my brain trying to process, you know, some other instance. So I'll just sit and okay, what was that other file? It was, you know, uh, you know, a woman drugged and, and killed her, her young kid. I'm going to sit and allow myself to feel sad for that. I'm going to then realize, wait a second, I spend my whole career, my whole adult life, my whole working life has not been writing computer code. It's not been running numbers for stock markets. It's to put people like that in jail. And then now I can drive a little satisfaction. I can put, you know, realize that, hey, there's evil in the world. And I have the honor of being able to be one of the people that confronts it. And that lets me then get on with my day without that bothering me. Because it, the evil is inevitable. We're doing what we can to, 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 to counter it. I find that strategy very helpful. That, that's something that's been really useful for me. Now, with that, so you had these intrusive thoughts. You were having problems sleeping. You know, you finally went to, um, you know, to a counselor. Were there any specific tools that work for you? I mean, obviously, I hear, you know, psychotherapy, EMDR. I mean, there are always different kind of uh, branches to, to the, the tools available to us. What were some of the things that worked for you specifically? Well, I think the biggest thing was just, un- I mean, the first thing was understanding why it was happening. That was probably the biggest relief. And understanding that th- this actually is very, very common. So you talk about intrusive thoughts, like, you know, like, hey, man, I was running a bath for my kid. And I started to think, like, how could someone do this to their daughter? I couldn't do that to my daughter. My And my mind kind of it was really dark, scary place. And I don't even want to think about what I was. Th- I don't want to think about what I was thinking about because it was like, it's just too, it's, it's, it's so, it's so dark. Like how could someone do this? And I'm disgusted by it and it's awful. And then, uh, to understand like, no, 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 like that's normal. First of all, like a lot of first responders have gone through that. Right. Um, like we see a side of the world that most people don't see. Like, like people think, Oh, you know, someone breathed their last breath. It's like, that's not a saying that's a description, right? Like I've heard that sound. Like you've, you've probably heard that. It's like, it's a, it's a sound many right? times. Yeah. Many times. Right. Like, and so when I say that, you know what I mean? Um, like, you know, so, Oh, he blew his head off. That's not a saying like that's an accurate description of what happens when someone sticks a rifle in their mouth. Like there's nothing there. So when we get confronted with things that are completely outside of the experience of, you know, my neighbor, the accountant who I'm good buddies with, it's like, they're not going to understand. Um, so just to understand that, Hey, like, we operate in an area that's outside of the realm of normal human experience. Therefore, these things are to be expected. That's the first thing. Understand that it's normal and that you're not weird and you're not crazy. And not only that, you're not, you're not even unfunctional. Like this is like, uh, again, if I, if I blew my back out, um, you know, if I bulged a disc and I get surgery and I get it repaired. Well, I can come back to the gym, right? Like I can keep doing the work I love. It's not, I don't have to, you know, stab off of it completely so that was the first thing understand that's normal and understand why it's happening like that library book analogy really helped me because i'm like oh okay i get it um the other analogy is understanding the difference between hurting and hard so like if you know that guy uh, oh you had him joel dr joel lower back guy does the foundations program oh um eric goodman you mean eric goodman yeah yeah, yeah. eric goodman so if you ever do his lower back foundations program on on youtube it hurts right Oh, it's but hard. it doesn't hurt. It's it's hard. Exactly. Right? It's hard. It's hard. So it's the same thing with experiencing emotions, right? It doesn't make you less tough. Uh, it and and it feels like it hurts the first time. It doesn't. It's hard. It, 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 you, so you think you want to protect yourself from it? 
That stuff hurts me. I don't want to feel that sadness. I don't want to acknowledge that that was difficult. I don't want to admit that I, I'm having trouble because it hurts. No, it doesn't, buddy. It's just hard and you'll get used to it. And it actually gets you know, pr pretty easy. And then it just makes everything better. So it's like, you know, it's like if I injured my leg and you said, you should go to the physiotherapist. I'm, oh, I, that hurts. Yeah, but it's going to make you better. Like you wouldn't resist that. It would be. So why do we resist psychological help? It doesn't make any sense. Well, that kind of reminds me of something one of my guests said, and I forget who it was. I wish I could remember because I need to give him credit. But um, they were talking about fitness, about, you know, actually working out to the to the level that we should. And he said, the problem is a lot of people are afraid of being tired. And I'm like, that is exactly it. You don't die from exercise unless you're that rare anomaly, obviously you drop dead in the middle of a field or something. But, but you know, it's the fear of, of discomfort. It's the fear of being tired, the fear of your lungs burning, your, your, you know, your heart beating out of your chest. But ultimately that's going to lead you again with, with sensible programming and rest and recovery to become a much better version of yourself. And I feel it's the same with addressing injuries, with the foundation training on ease over toes or with the mental health stuff. Meditation, when you've got a fucking maelstrom in your mind is hard. Trying to, I just meditated this morning. When I began my little meditation journey a few months ago again, my, I was crawling under my skin and that showed me what a bad place I was actually in. And those first few times sitting in that chair for just 10 minutes was hard. But it, yeah, you know, so, but it wasn't painful like you were saying, but it, it took effort. It took diligence. It took creating a routine. It took discipline to take those first steps and just like you said then it started to become easier man I, so you know accepting your suffering right it's just it, it's it, it's so key i remember so when i was in grade 12 i decided to play football right and i'm not a big guy i'm five foot nine and i'm only 175 pounds um and i was even like smaller then and i wasn't fast and i didn't get to play much because i wasn't fast so i wasn't starting at the end of every practice, we'd run 40s, right? So you run 40 yards, like back and forth, like wind sprints, like 10 times. And one day I got mad and I said, you know, um, I'm I'm just going to run till I puke. I don't give a shit. Like I'm going to run as fast as I can, as long as I can. And I wasn't the fastest guy on the team, but I'd win. And I went, ran 40s and I would win every practice. And then the coach started playing me more. And the reason I was able to win is because I just accepted my suffering. I was like, I'm able to do this. Like I can hang here. And I'd, I'd learned that skill in karate. I applied that in boxing because in boxing's hard, man. And like, I don't know how the pros do it for 12 rounds because like amateur fights, like three rounds. But then you realize, wait a second, I can survive here. I can be this tired and still perform. No problem. Right. And it's that it's like a mental toughness switch. I'm I'm convinced like you, you know, pick the toughest guy in the world. Their bodies don't work differently than ours do. They've just made a different decision than us. I mean, they might. There's some guys that really have weird pain tolerances and some guys have great lung capacity, of course. But I think probably 90% of the difference is actually just a decision, right? So why can't I make the decision that I am mentally uh, and emotionally robust? And you know what? I can take these tough circumstances that are going to make most people wilt. And if you don't deal with them properly, they're going to make you wilt. But I can actually do the hard work of dealing with it properly. Why, why can't I do that? What, you know, I'm a tough guy, right? I'm pretty tough. I can do that. So why don't I do that? Because it's hard. Well, why don't I just make the decision to do the hard things? So that, you know, that's a, like it was a conscious decision I made and uh, it's paid dividends. That's amazing. I actually just made a decision myself almost two weeks ago now. 
I, I've tried taking time off alcohol, like, you know, one month at a time and successful until the day I start drinking again. And then it becomes habitual. Not, not, I always say not binge drinking, but definitely, you know, a couple of drinks pretty much every single night. And I'm like, this, this is the one barrier to me really leveling up on my health and wellness and performance. So this last time, it was actually I got that flu going around and that came with this brutal headache and I get migraines. So it just like doubled down. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm, it's not working for me to half ass this. So I'm just going to stop drinking. Like lifestyle choice. I'm not going to drink anymore. Teetotals, we call it in England. Um, and again, because you're focusing on the outcome. The outcome is I'm going to wake up in the morning because I could have one or two drinks and still feel like shit the next morning. My body just doesn't like it. So it's been telling me for years. I know it's affecting my sleep and I talk about sleep all the time. And so, you know, that was a decision. But it was also that there's an element of hard in that kind of thing too. Like I'm not craving alcohol, I'll be honest, but, you know, there is that discipline. There is that, okay, I'm not going to go yeah, my wife's going to go out to a nightclub on her birthday. I'm like, you know, what? I'm I'm going to let you go with the girls because I don't want to put myself in that situation while I'm working on this new discipline of mine. But yeah, every single one of these things that will make us better has an element of hard and you have to ask, what is the ultimate goal? What is the why behind this? I guarantee you that's going to outweigh the hard. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't so I don't drink. Um, I think that was one of the variables that I've controlled early that really helped me. You know, I, I can just imagine. So imagine you're getting two hours of sleep a night. You're having nightmares. Maybe you haven't invested in your relationship probably, or those issues are causing the relationship degradation. You've got financial pressures. You're not getting along with people at work and you're drinking, you know, like you can see how things get dark pretty quick. So I'm, I'm grateful that, um, yeah, I was a bit of a partier in, in university, um, even like on select occasions after that. But I mean, I don't, like I don't drink. I, I just, I, I don't like whiskey, like hard liquor tastes like gasoline to me. And I, I, I suspect everyone is lying when they say it's good. I think I'm like, no, you guys are, you guys are just all faking. Um, beer is not my favorite. Don't mind a bit of wine. Don't mind some mixed drinks, but I just don't drink. So how about this? You say you're not going to drink. You talk about meditation. Do you think it's worthwhile meditating? I've never done it. Oh, hundred percent. And to me, for James Gearing specifically, the key to me not drinking is meditation. Because ultimately, I've always used it as a decompression tool. You know, you come off 24 hours as a firefighter, come home. Now you're a dad with a you know, newborn, for example. You get to the end of the day. It's very easy, very socially acceptable to, you know, have two beers to, to quote unquote wind down. The physiology behind it is you are not winding down. You're not getting good sleep. But it was a very easy kind of cycle to, to buy into. Now, what I realize is if, you know, through the meditation and obviously exercise and, and things like, um, you know, getting outside the moment I wake up. So I'm getting the sunrise hitting my retina and, and resetting my circadian rhythm. I am naturally tired if I don't touch any alcohol by 9.30. So then I just 9.30, 10, 10, 30, I just go to bed, you know? So it's just removing that entire thing. But absolutely on my journey, and I did a video on it when I was in this kind of depression that I was in a few months ago meditation was absolutely key to start addressing you know the the maelstrom and then the the uh analogy i've used and people may have heard this a few times already but the little bingo balls you know the lotteries you know and the, the balls are bouncing around in the cage and they, they pull out one ball at a time that's what i vision in my mind and what meditation done is turn off the fan like each of those thoughts are probably valid and there's something that you need to address you know feed your children you know 
pay the bills, whatever it is, but you don't need to think about them 10,000 times a day. So that was a huge thing for me, I think, for the mental health side was quietening the mind because we are, you know, um, hypervigilant and being able to truly be present, be in the moment. And that's the thing that I, I lost in the fire service is because you're always on edge. I kind of was always like thinking about the next thing, was never enjoying where I was at that moment. So you've motivated me here. This is something that meditation is something I've sort of squirmed away from because it sounds like it hurts, but it's probably just hard. Um, it's something that like I know is probably good for me, but I've never done it. So you've motivated. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to you. I'm going to try it. Try, um, so try Headspace, the, the app Headspace. Headspace. That's what I use. And I, I would love to get them as a sponsor on the show because I talk about them all the time and I think they're you know a great tool for us. But uh, yeah, I'm, you know, you can do so it a 10 minute 15 minute meditation has such an amazing impact of course you can go meditate for an hour two hours or whatever i don't think you need to especially in our profession where you know we want to be efficient i find that so so good you know and what i used to like doing in the fire station years ago was if we came back from a call maybe it was a bad call you know 2 a.m 3 a.m and you get back in your bunk i would put the headspace on in my headphones and I would wake up the next morning if we didn't get another call, you know, with with the phone still in my hand, you know, and I'd fall asleep. So it's such a great tool for actual meditation, but even just for winding down the evening as well. That's it. Okay, I'm I'm going to try that, man. I appreciate that recommendation and the encouragement. I'm going to I'm going to give that a try, and I'll report back. But uh, you, you talk about sleeping. So I went from literally staring at my ceiling till three in the morning. And I have to get up at 5.30 and it'd be one of those, okay, if I fall asleep right now, I'll get six hours sleep. If I fall asleep right now, I'll get five hours sleep. You know, to, to, to present day, I will fall asleep within 10 seconds of my head hitting the pillow. It annoys the heck out of my wife. Um, I sleep generally seven to eight hours a night um, without, you know, I, I still get nightmares sometimes, but, um, you know, I don't eat anything after dinner. Um, I find that helps a lot. I, I don't drink. I, I try to try to limit my screen time in the evening, but I'm really, really bad at that. So I don't want to profess to be any sort of like monk about it. Um, but yeah, my, my sleep hygiene, we our, our bedroom's completely dark. So I've taken sleep hygiene pretty seriously and it, and it's helped me a lot to go from a completely dysfunctional sleeper to, I would say like almost expert level sleeping. Beautiful. Well, I have the blue blocking glasses too. So even if you are watching a little telly, I wear those in the evening and that, that seems to help. I still get tired regardless of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fall down the, the Twitter rabbit hole and the Facebook and, you know, and then get all wound up over, <laughs> you know, whatever the algorithms are feeding me to, to make me upset and click on things. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker when it comes to that stuff. And I, they, 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 they got me my number. <laughs> well, I've heard some people say they just take those apps off the phone, have them on their computers. It's a lot harder to access it then. So that, that seems like a good thing. If you're my, my wife is terrible with TikTok now. She's got into that. And uh, I tell her she's got to go either put headphones in or go to the other room because those sounds make me want to throw a phone through a fucking window. But, uh, <laughs> but speaking of wives, I just want to touch on this quickly. So your wife is in law enforcement as well. What are, what are some of the elements, if, you, if you've become aware of any at all, that has made your marriage successful with both of you being in that profession? Because that's quite a unique dynamic. Yeah, well, we worked separately most of our careers. We, we were kind of worked major crime together for a short time, and we actually like shared a, a cubicle partition. 
And it was the most, like, I had to ask to be moved because it's like, listen, I can't listen to you. Like your work talk and your home talk like is different. And I would drive her nuts at work too. So actually like, listen, like I gotta, we gotta trade some desks with people or something. But I guess the tough part is, is it, is it, you know, you hit on it before where it's like our peer group is skewed. Right. And, um, you know, what we think is normal is not normal. My wife always get, gets annoyed at me because I'm always like, oh, I'm out, of, I'm out of shape. I'm so weak. She's like, you're not out of shape. I'm like, but I'm comparing myself to the guys at, at work, right? Who are, you know, some of them are like 25, 30-year-old phenoms. I, I can't keep up with that anymore. So yeah, like my 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 peer group is skewed on that. And having, I think, a spouse in law enforcement kind of, we, we fall in the trap of of just talking about work all the time. And then, especially if you start getting organizational frustration. So it's one thing, you know, for a bad file, but then you want, you know, add on top of that, oh, you know, the boss did this, or, you know, this new stupid policy came down or our funding got cut or, you know, like, ah, like all this, the, you know, the political stuff, I can't believe they promoted that guy. And I like that started to get pretty, um, that, that started to get uh, pretty caustic in, in our, in our uh not in our relationship, but it's like sort of we became aligned against the organization, it just became a negative influence. So we we had to try to stop that, you know, like like purposely stop that. So she's looking at she's actually just in the midst of retiring now. So she'll be putting in her paper soon, um, which is going to be awesome. She's got her retirement gig all lined up of being a Pilates instructor. So it's like just like the furthest thing possible from dealing with things. And And you know what it's like. I mean, you know, you go to parties and it's like people want to hear the cop story or, you know, people want to, you know, complain about the ticket or, you know, like you're the police. Oh, I, you know, you will have like a little barbecue in the cul-de-sac out front of our house and the neighbor will have a beer and like, oh, I should hide this from you. And it's like, oh, I'm so sick of that, you know. So I can't wait to retire for those reasons. Like it'll be nice just to be a normal person again. And it'll be even nicer to be a normal couple again. Brilliant. Well, there's one more topic I want to hit on, and then we'll go to some closing questions. But I'm always, I'm always, you know, open to whatever the perspective is. But I think law enforcement is probably one of the hardest groups of people to kind of pose this question to. So this is totally my perspective. Um, you know, being a firefighter paramedic, seeing the ripple effect of the illicit drug trade, you know, whether it's the actual, like, as you touched on before, the gang violence itself, whether it's the, the overdoses we run on, the homelessness, the, you know, domestic abuse. I mean, you name it. Everything is kind of tied in. When I learned not only about the, uh, the kind of genesis of drug prohibition and, and really what an absolute, you know, shit show that was. And it was based on racism and on the back end of alcohol prohibition. But then my family, a couple of my family's, um, family members moved to Portugal. I got to sit with Jao Gulao, who's the guy in Portugal that spearheaded decriminalization of addiction in Portugal, not smuggling, not selling, but addicts. And they, rather than send them through the criminal system, they send them through, um, addiction counseling, mental health counseling, job creation. And then anyone who's left over that can't kick it, they have, you know, safe, safe sites where they can be under the, the guise of, uh, excuse me, under the, the view of the medical community. So. Without loading the question, that's just my specific opinion. I think that, you know, prohibition has caused so much violence and I think that decriminalization would be something that we should look at in some of the other Western countries. What has been your perspective with all the different divisions that you've worked in on the element of the illicit drug trade empowering the underworld 
um, you know, and, and they're obviously preying upon addicts versus maybe legalizing or not decriminalizing addiction and putting the power in the hands of the medical community. Yeah. So there's some interesting parallels. We actually have a pretty successful model with alcohol. So do you remember back in the days, like you'd pick up the, you know, you find someone who's intoxicated on the street and they're, they are like from alcohol and they're a danger to themselves. Like you can't leave them in the snowbank. Like they're, they will die. We used to take them to, to cells. Well, you're, you know, you're, you know, dry out in the drunk tank kind of thing. Well, you're taking someone who's like high medical risk individual and, you know, and putting them in a, a detention facility and we would always get cell deaths. And then it's like, well, why did this person, you know, sometimes they, they would commit suicide. Sometimes they would die just because they have really complex health issues. And it's like, well, wait a second. Like this is not a policing problem, right? So the police have always been the default social service because no one else works 24 seven. And so now we've got a dry out center. So you take them to the dry out center and it's like a medical facility staffed with nurses and they take care of them. Like, like it's, it's just better for everyone involved. And I see, and it's funny, like some of the old timers were against that because it's like, no, the night in the drunk tank was a punitive measure. Like we're going to teach you a lesson about, you know, passing out on the, on the bus stops. Like, dude, that guy's an alcoholic. You're not teaching him anything. Like, like you do not rate in that equation of your little punitive night. Like that is besides the point. And I see a lot of parallels with uh, with it, with, you know, opioid addiction. The most interesting I ever found once we were doing a crack shack uh, search warrant and I found a journal that was kept by, um, a heroin addict who was also a prostitute. And it was, and she would write, I, I wish, I wish we had, I, I'd kept it or like you could have published this thing. It would have been phenomenal. Um, we, I don't even think we seized it to be honest, but, um, I read it and it was her day by day, account of what she was going to do uh, in her life. And her priorities always were, the number one priority was always getting her fix. Like that came before anything. Then it was shelter, then it was food. And like in that order, and she would talk about the things that she had to do to make money, you know, for that next hit. There was really literally nothing she wouldn't do for it. It was, it was, it was the most tragic thing I, I've ever read in my life. She had a child and she was um, trying to arrange a visitation because of course the child was with social services and she had this whole like it was like three pages of how she was modulating her drug intake so that she would be functional like not sober but functional during that visit when I read that it's like man like this person is not a criminal like like this, like, like not even like by no stretch of the imagination is this is this person a criminal like they deserve our sympathy. They deserve our help. Um, they did and, and nothing short of that. Um, meanwhile, you know, the drug dealers who are in that penthouse suite with the box full of money, and I'm not talking shoebox, I'm talking like moving box full of money. Uh, they do not deserve our sympathy. They, you know, and it, like, like whatsoever. We are seeing a move towards decriminalization here. I think the current proposals is, like 4.5 grams for personal use of like fentanyl, which I think the position of the Canadian Association Chief of Police is like, well, like, well, that's, that's a bit high there, guys. Like, why don't you try one gram? It, it's, you know, so it's bouncing between policy recommendations like that. I, I think it is quite inevitable, um, which, which I think is a good thing. I'm always in favor of hammering these drug dealers, though. Like, like, 
just hammering them as hard as we possibly can. They, they deserve no sympathy at all. They're predators. And, uh, you know, they take advantage of that, that poor lady and, and they're perpetuating that. But I don't, the social calculation of, I would rather watch someone break into my car and steal, you know, $500 worth of stuff to, you know, that they can sell at pennies on the dollar for a $20 fix instead of us just, you know, securing some sort of, me- you know, medical grade safe supply. I don't understand that calculation. So, um, I'm not super conservative when it comes to that stuff. No, but I think that's yeah, it's funny people use words liberal conservative. I think it it's it's you know, humanity, it's compassion is where it should be rooted. And the irony is you've told, you know, there are things that live in your head that are a result of drug prohibition. Some of these drug related murders that you went to, you know, happened because we made a substances illegal and therefore empowered a black market of people to, you know, supply these addicts. And what they saw in Portugal specifically is supply and demand. You've cut the head off the snake. You put the the addiction element back in the communities, the medical community's hands. There's almost no supply now for the black market. So where you could turn to the illicit drug trade and become a little shitbag, you know, drug dealer, that isn't that option just isn't there anymore. And like you said, now you add the violence and the robbery and all those things that are attached to someone simply trying to monetize their next fix, that goes away again. So now you freed up resources in law enforcement, resources in the court system, and we can start chasing the pedophiles and all the other shitbags that need, really, really need our attention and maybe actually have the the manpower and the safety on the streets where, for example, in America, our cops don't have to walk around in tactical gear anymore because people aren't murdering each other on our on our streets. Well, that's it. Like, I've never met a heroin addict who actually wanted to be a heroin addict and was, like, satisfied with their life. Um, that said, I don't think it's a panacea. It's not, it's not a silver bullet. Um, you know, if you're going to do that, but then not fund mental health, pro- uh, mental health treatments, you're you know, you're, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. That's not the full solution. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Vancouver, but if you ever go to Vancouver and take a drive down the downtown East side, um, the level of addiction they struggle with there and social problems and mental health issues. So it's like, no one's just a heroin addict. They're like a heroin addict with, you know, schizophrenic bipolar disorder, right? Like these are, I don't even know how you solve that, but I do know that's not really a policing issue. Um, I would rather, you know, go after the the murderers and the robbers and that, you know, like the actual criminals rather than expend resources down there. But then inevitably you get these guys who infiltrate those communities. And uh, like, what do we have one guy like to collect drug debts? He would cut tendons like with pliers. Like that was his thing, you know, like, uh, you know, like we, we got it. Like, let's stop trying the same thing, expecting different results. You know, there's some horrible people out there that will take advantage of those, of those people. So. Yeah. Well, exactly. I think, you know, the mental health element is exactly that. And that's what they've done in Portugal. The money that they used on their quote unquote war on drugs, a portion was given to proactive, you know, and then therefore then, like I said, the law enforcement can focus on, you know, the dealers or smugglers that absolutely need to be shut down. Um, you know, and, and with the, the mental ill health that we're seeing on the streets and you hear people talking about LA. Well, I mean, yeah, it's an epidemic and shuttling people to another jurisdiction is not the answer. 
But, you know, you've also got to look at the multi-generational element that these prohibition laws have created. And we do have households where kids are growing up with a single parent, growing up around drug dealers and violence. And there's a high chance that those children are then going to find themselves in the same path. So we have to look at the long game, too. You're not going to fix it overnight. But if we start today, my goodness, you know, our grandchildren's generation are going to look back and go, wow, I can't believe that, you know, prior to their generation, people were murdering each other on the streets in America. Now it's one of the safest countries in the world, like Norway and Sweden and Iceland and other places actually that take their nation's physical and mental health seriously. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the policing numbers in Norway and Sweden, those Nordic countries, they actually have a higher per capita policing rate than than North America does, uh, certainly in Canada. Um, so it's like, it's not like they're cutting police officers because they have these other laws. They're still investing in policing and they're still getting a return on, on that investment. But I, you know, it, mental health issues and addictions are so inextricably linked. You, you kind of have to look at both of them. So one of the frequent issues we have here is the police get criticized because we get called to mental health complaints. So you'll have someone who's you know, having a complete psych, you know, um, psychotic episode, a total break from reality. Um, you know, sometimes they're not initially violent, but the only people that are there to show up are the police. And then they come running at them with a knife and the police shoot them. And now it's like, well, why are the police doing mental health checks in, in the first place? And it's because of this chronic underfunding of the, uh, of the mental health system, you know, and we're having huge success here. And, uh, like we're teaming up mental health workers with police officers because you can't, if you just send social workers to all those calls, like eventually a social worker is going to get hurt. Like that's just inevitable. Um, so how do you modulate that though? So that you get better service because you send the cops, well, they're going to, you know, apprehend the person under the mental health, like, you know, we have mental health act here. So you can apprehend the person and bring them to the psych ward. They're going to be sitting in the ER for six hours waiting for a doctor's assessment. Well, we can actually, you know, improve service on all levels, get them in quicker if that's where they need to go or if they don't need to go because the cops can't, assess that person properly. Usually it's like, maybe there's some community resource. They don't have to make the trip at all. Or if they do make the trip with the mental health nurse, it's one hour, not six hours. So we're, we're starting to see these programs proliferate and there's just massive, like, like indescribable benefits for them. It's, it's really hard to, to overstate their value in getting cops out of things that are not cop things. You know, like being a cop's awesome, but it's not everything. It, it should, we shouldn't be in everything. It's like, you know, so, some people think policing is like vitamins, right? Like the more you take, the better. I think it's, it's more to think of like medicine. Like you take it when it's needed, but other than that, you, you, you probably don't want it around. Absolutely. Well, mate, I mean, I, I truly appreciate your perspective and it's just so fascinating for people of all walks of life. Some people, you know, still like, no, we should lock addicts all up. But I think I'd say 95% of people that have been on here have given this perspective. And I think, you know, sadly, it's not something that we hear out, you know, from, from the people wearing the suits in the government buildings. Um, I want to shift to some closing questions so I can let you go. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. You know, what we talked about earlier about the ability to connect to the moment that you're living in rather than, you know, thinking of the next thing or being distracted. And so I think that the book that I'm uh, that I that I'm just reading now, I'm almost done. It is 4000 weeks and it speaks exactly to that about you know how to live in the present and like my book is 
underlined and dog-eared and uh it's just like one of those ones where you only want to read a few pages at a time because there's just so much meaning and value in it so i i i can't recommend that enough i i got it because tim ferris recommended it and i was like oh i'll give it a shot he usually does good taste in books and it did not disappoint absolutely fantastic brilliant you know i've never heard of that one recommended so thank you and i love tim ferris too so I, i'll take that as well brilliant all right what about a movie and or a documentary that you love a movie or a documentary that i love oh man <laughs> You know what? I, 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 boy, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, I, I can't say. There's, there's nothing that. Uh, the, well, I'll tell you. Okay, here's one. Uh, if you want to get your brain melted, and this is like completely off topic, so I won't, you know, I, I, I won't fault you if you, if you don't want to include this. It's called Xplant, and you actually watch on YouTube, and it's about breast, the breast implant industry. And the reason it's meaningful to me is uh, six years ago, my wife went through uh, breast cancer, um, which is like, man, like I was glad I had dealt with my massive nightmare issue because the pressure that put us, uh, you know, us under her especially was 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 just incredible. Uh, so we talk about controlling variables it's like, man, you never know when life's going to throw you that curveball. So, so you better be ready. You better. Well, it's like the training issue. You, you don't know when that test is coming. So make sure you've done all your training and your prep beforehand. Uh, so as part of her her um, uh, treatment, of course, she had surgery and they put they they just kind of, hey, man, you, you need to get uh, breast implants like that's just what we like. You're on the bus. They're driving the bus and you get your chemo and you get your radiation and then you get your you get your surgery and they give you breast implants. Well, um, five years after she started getting sick, like sick, like unable to work, massive joint aches, like just like every day she'd wake up like she was got hit by a bus like she was getting like she I was watching her just going down the drain and uh i was at work and i happened to mention it to someone that you know, in passing that oh my god my tara's not feeling well and they're like and uh it was, it was one of the ladies who works in her office does like a bunch of her admin she goes well your wife has breast implants right i'm like yeah yeah she should get those out there's this thing called breast implant illness and it's this thing where your your body treats implants like a uh, a foreign object and it creates an autoimmune issue and uh there's been all sorts of like fascinating um, history about how breast implants were approved, the process they went through, some of the issues people have with them, uh, and and some of the successes that people have when uh, when they get them out. So for my wife, we you know went down to California a few months ago. There's a guy there, Dr. Chun, who's absolutely phenomenal. Um, we you know socialized medicine in Canada, a long wait list, and not a great selection of surgeons. So we just put our money on the table went down and got it taken care of. And and it was like literally the next day uh, she was feeling better. So I say that because I ran into that. Like if, if again, like that connection of someone saying, Hey, like they're interested in what's going on in my life. They say, well, did you check out this? Because my friend had this. So maybe someone listening is like, Oh my God, like a light bulb will go on. Like it went on with, with, with us and it, and it helps them um, because it, because it certainly helped us. It made a huge difference. So that's something that we never thought about. So I'm going to have to watch that. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's terrifying. I'm sure it is. <laughs> it's like any, you know, it's like people make documentaries. They've they've got a perspective. They're trying to, you know, sell a certain angle. And, you know, it's like media a little bit. They're trying to alarm. So, you know, uh, you know, make your own choices but uh, or conclusions. But, uh, you know, that was a topic that it strikes close to home. So that's something that we watched. And it was like, it was pretty eye-opening. We watched it after the fact. And we're like, oh, it would have been nice to know that. 
to begin with. But I think there's new warnings on on breast implants now. Like uh, with the FDA, there's there's new protocols in place that yeah. are just recent. Well, yeah, it makes sense. You are putting a foreign body in the body, so you know, and it's not even that hard to believe. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so that's what my. If you're gonna ask for a documentary, a little bit out there, off topic, but that's the one. No, but it's perfect. Like I said, it can be about anything. So, all right. Well, the next question is: There a person you recommend to come on this pro, uh, podcast as a guest to? God, let me spit that out again. Next question. Is there anyone you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah. You know who I'd recommend is, is I mentioned him earlier, is uh, Will Petty. So Will Petty was a Dallas-Fort Worth officer. Um, he created a company called Centrifuge Training. And he created, they do a lot of different uh, training topics now, but he started out with uh, a product called Vehicle CQB. So he looked at the data and he said, wow, he's like a lot of police shootings, in fact, most are into, out of, and around vehicles. And yet, how do we train our officers? Static on the range. And um, I actually, we, we brought him up when I was running uh, the uh, training debt uh, for the team. We brought him up to teach us some of the, some of these skills. Like, cause there's all kinds of interesting things about ballistics and, you know, how rounds penetrate glass and how they penetrate vehicles or don't penetrate vehicles and where to position yourself, like all kinds of things. Um, so we actually, we, we brought him out um, to do some training with us. And then actually that program has now been expanded across the entire agency. So now every police officer uh, in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police actually gets a, a portion of this training. He's a guy, first of all, he's super entertaining. He understands training mindset. He understands policing culture uh, in a way that I really, uh, have never seen before or since. And he, and he's really engaging and entertaining and, you know, his 40,000, whatever followers on Instagram kind of prove that. And he's just, uh, yeah, super interesting guy. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, if they want to reach out to you, what do you do to decompress these days? You know, right now I'm just um, uh, working on my fitness and uh, getting back into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I, you know, I was a, I, I suffered the the blue belt curse, you know, where I trained for years, uh, got my blue belt, quit when I went back to law school, and then I uh, didn't go back for like eight years, nine years. So I was out of it for for ten years. So uh, so I've been back there. COVID has put a bit of a damper in that. There's certain times when gyms close down here, um, but yeah, that's what I'm doing. And then my other big thing is, man. I love, uh, I do big Northern trips with my buddy. So every few years we do a big trip. We've been doing them since high school. Uh, we've hiked across the Arctic circle. We've canoed, uh, hundreds of kilometers in, in, in the Yukon territory and Northwest territory. We've been up to Dawson city. Uh, so yeah, every few years we do uh, a big trip. So this one's planned in August. We're canoeing the Yukon river again. We've done it before from Whitehorse to Dawson city. I think it's about 600 kilometers. So I don't know what, what's that? Um, 360 miles, something like that. Um, so yeah, we try not to get eaten by bears. I was going to say, it's a long way either way, metric and or imperial. <laughs> current's pretty fast, but you know, to, for, to me, getting away and like, there's no way to contact us. There's no cell phones. There's no way. Like, like the first day you're twitchy because you're like, oh, you know, I got to deal with something. And then you learn to live in the moment, right? And then you learn to connect and you, you're, you're connecting with your best friend. And a lot of times we're having these deep conversations about what does it mean to be a good husband? What does it mean to, you know, have career success? What does it mean to be successful in life? Like, like these conversations cannot take place over a beer. Like they take five days to generate and then three more days to, you know, to mature in, into the, the, the final conclusion. 
you come back, man, you are like a new man. You're, you're energized. You're, you're, and it's funny, like it's counterintuitive because my wife's like, well, that's a lot of time away, but she knows when I come back, I'm like a much better person. So I, I love that stuff. I highly recommend it. And it's, uh, yeah, just don't get eaten by a polar bear. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, so for people listening, I'm sure, you know, that they, they, you know, got a lot of questions, would love to reach out to you. Where are the best places to find you online? Probably the best place is, is just LinkedIn. Um, that's, you know, that's where you and I connected. Uh, I published some things once in a while, um, but uh, not super active in it, but I'm, I'm easily findable and easily available and, and I, I respond to messages. So yeah, I would love to make some new contacts. No problem. Brilliant. Well, Kevin, I just want to say thank you again. We've gone way past two hours now and, and so many different tangents to this conversation. But, you know, whether it's your mental health story or, you know, your your perspective as far as training or the mental health element, um, I mean, excuse me, the addiction element, uh, you know, it's it's invaluable to hear all these different you know perspectives and stories from all over the world. So I just want to thank you so much for for being so transparent and coming on the show today. Yeah, well, thanks, James. James, thank you for what you do. You put a lot like this is a labor of love for you. And, uh, you know, I, I when I found the podcast, it was when uh, Jeff McGreevy and, and Chief Shy came on it and uh, and Jonathan Montgomery and, you know, the, those guys. So uh, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and uh, and and the mission you have, man, it's like so important. It, and it's it's helped me a lot. Like your podcast has personally helped me a lot so thank you uh thank you for that i know i'm not alone in that so i know there's lots of people that would you know love to thank you personally so i get the opportunity to do it so i'm going to do it uh for myself and 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 i know on behalf of a lot of other people 